Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Garrett Boyum, joined with Robert Fry and Garrett Baker. And today we're going to talk about a good concept called Goodhart's Law, which more or less is basically trying to understand the fallacies of chasing a single metric. And I think this is this is one of those topics very pertinent to baseball, especially now where especially I've seen guys starting to really chase metrics over the game itself and how it actually plays within the game, especially on the pitching side. At least I've seen that a good bit where somebody sells out for a very specific metric and never actually figures out how that metric may help them in the game, like how that may actually help you get outs. And I think that's where that's where a lot of people could potentially get lost within this whole thing. They're valuable, but only when it actually brings you back to the game. And so for me, like, I feel like this fits really well with an ecological approach, because to me, an ecological approach helps us stay focused on what is important. Like, What is the, for the lack of a better term, specifying about like what it is that we're doing that's actually going to help us see the results or see what we do in practice transfer to the field. And so that's why today I wanted to go through this, this tweet that I put out a long time ago on Goodhart's Law. I do want to say uh, for, for listeners of the podcast, you are going to definitely be hearing more of Baker. Baker's one of our new co-hosts who's going to be in the rotation. So today's episode is a two-parter. Uh, while we were recording the intro, we started riffing on our thoughts on the topic and kind of gave an updated version of our thoughts on Goodhart's Law and how we're currently using and applying it. Additionally, this episode, there's, there's a few visuals. Um, we're talking about a few different um, Twitter posts and there's some images with it and there's a little bit of video as well. So if you would like to better follow along with what we're t- talking about and discussing, because I kind of forgot that it was, this is mostly an audio podcast, so I didn't describe the pictures quite as well as I should have. So if you want to be able to follow along with us, uh, head on over to Spotify or YouTube. And otherwise, without further ado, Enjoy today's podcast. Also, if you enjoy our content and would like to learn more about ecological dynamics, one of our favorite topics here on Finding the Edge, we encourage you to check out the work by Emergence. We got a great deal going on with them right now to get 7% off if you use the code EDGE7. They got a wide range of courses ranging from an extensive mentorship for those who really want to dive deep and get something a little bit more customized and unique to them. Unfortunately, the code doesn't work for that, but if you're looking for a great alternative, we recommend you check out the Movement Academy intro. The Movement Academy intro is a college-style course facilitated by the team members at Emergence. But if you're looking for something a little less intense, but yet more of a broad overview of these ideas and concepts, check out EcoD for Dummies. If you want something that, uh, uh, that gives you an overview, but as well as practical examples, check out the Practitioner's Bundle. And you get three mini courses on the warm up and how these ideas apply within the weight room and to speed and agility. So, if you're looking for an edge in your coaching, check out the content by Emergence. Make sure to follow Emergence at Emergent Movement. Movement is abbreviated MVMT. That'll be their handle for all their social media. It's also used for their website, emergentmovement.com. You can find all their links to their social media and their website in the description below.
to to flip back to what we were talking about though about Goodhart's law, what what was it that you were talking about even more recently in, in terms of chasing metrics? I know we were talking about it earlier. I mean, because I I know for for myself, and this is what we get into in the episode was just talking about bat speed. Like bat speed is a is a metric that I think a lot of coaches chase, and I just you know. I haven't seen necessarily a huge correlation, at least in some of the, the the little bits of data that I've collected. And so to me, it's like, well, what is the most important thing? And to me, it's like the ability to put the ball where you want on the field. Um, that's really what matters. And so, I mean, the other thing too, and I think this is something that I've been saying to more of my players is like, let the ball be your feedback. You know, instead of looking at, okay, what's this metric? Like the ball is going to tell you, did you hit it well or did you not? And so I think, I can't remember if we talked about it in this, this episode or not, but the whole idea of like the, the world is its own best model. Instead of trying to go off of these models of, you know, this is the ideal bat speed. And, and not saying that like these things aren't necessarily good, but if it doesn't transfer, like making sure what you're doing transfers, if you're going to spend all this time on it, you know, and it, then you don't see it show up on the field. Then to me that in terms of on-field performance, then to me, I think we, we wasted a lot of the players valuable time. No, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. Cause then if you want to chase a single metric like that, now internally that person may be thinking, Oh, I just got to swing as fast as possible. What, what holes does that create? It doesn't just create possibly more swing and miss. It could create just very incorrect imbalances within the swing itself. And like you said, like having the world kind of be your view or the, the field, the ball, whatever. Uh, it creates that kind of that dichotomy where it's not exactly what you want. You know, if it's like, oh, I swung the bat fast. Oh, I'm good. Yeah, or in think, terms of it, it'll affect your batted ball outcomes. Sorry, what were you going to say, Baker? No, I was just going to say, I think this all kind of comes back to the idea of, like, your action capabilities or, like, how you, what you can actually do versus, like, it actually being a skill. And I've talked to this with our guys about certain pitches. Like, we could get a really good metric for a specific pitch, but it's the difference between, like, having a quote-unquote nasty pitch and an actual skillful pitch and a pitch that's going to play within context and actually produce an out versus just, like, one thing that maybe moves a lot more. Yeah, now you now now it's moving a ton more, which may potentially help us be get a lot more outs. But it only matters when it's in context and we're actually skillful with that pitch. Because like I've seen people get a really good metric with a pitch and never be able to utilize it in a skillful way within a game context. And I think understanding what pitches necessarily need to become a little better, which ones don't, all rely on the game, not based on what output you may see on like Rapsodo or Trackman. I think it's a decent place to look when you don't have the game. And it's a good place when a pitch isn't potentially working to look to, to like, okay, this, if I get it this in this direction, it may potentially happen in the game, but it needs to work back all the way to that. Like getting outs within a game so I can prevent runs, which I know we go into the episode a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I think too, to kind of build off of this, like even where we are right now in our off season phase, like I've, and I think this, this actually came up in one of the, uh, one of Rob Gray's recent episodes in terms of like specificity, like how specific your game like does it need to be? 
And I think there are times where you can just build or try to build a little bit of like uh, capabilities, um, action cap. Was it action capabilities or was it that he's, Baker? He's we were talking saying, about this, but no. But what Stu was saying, there's there's yeah. a difference between. Um, well, he talks skill and ability, skill, right? Yeah, know? skill and ability, right? Yeah. So, like, just the ability to express raw power. Like, I think there's time to do that. And so, right now, like, we're hitting, we're hitting off a machine that's just basically all fastballs. But it's a, but it's such that guys can actually hit it, and then learn how to generate a ton of force into a baseball using a bat. And so, you know, that's. How well that transfers will depend upon once you put somebody in there who's actually trying to get them out throwing different pitches. That'll be kind of the test as to whether or not this transfers. But increasing their ability to like contact the ball um, with more force, you know, sometimes you actually have to simplify the task more so that they're able to actually focus on that thing. And so that's where, you know, to me, it's there. There's a time and place, right? Like you were talking about for working on like the metrics or whatever in order for you to be able to, for example, throw some sort of other pitch, you may need to do it in a stripped down context where you're just mm -hmm. exploring with the ball and you're just seeing what type of movement can you put on that ball. And then eventually you do need to go out and test it against a resisting opponent or a, like an actual batter who's trying to hit that ball and then see how does, how do batters react to that pitch? Like that's, so I, I think it just kind of depends where you are, you know, like I, I think back to like pitchers uh, playing catch. It was that place where you'd mess around and just see how you could get the ball to move before you had cameras. And now I think the cameras help guys who had less feel and less ability to kind of explore, give them more feedback as to far as how are they interacting with that ball. And so, I mean, I've seen it at least with our guys. Uh, with what our pitching coach is doing, like having that visual information and using Rapsodo to help guys understand how they're interacting with the ball then helps them. Like you can just take it to the next level of exploration in terms of like, okay, if I start messing with this and, and with this feel, like how is it, how, how am I now interacting with that ball? And then you actually can see how you're actually now interacting with it and being like, well, why isn't this, why isn't this moving the way that I want it to? And then actually seeing like, oh, I'm not actually getting my fingers or my hand to that spot. So I feel like that's important to throw out there. You know, I don't know what your, your thoughts are, Baker, on that as far as having a lot of the, the um, game-like information or constraints pulled out of the, the training environment. But that's, that to me is where I'm kind of curious your thoughts. Because we've, we've very much gone on that, oh, we want to have all these game-like constraints or information sources present um, in the practice environment. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think it also depends on different timescales, like where we are in the season too. Um, it's like, there's like right now we're not going to have hitters. So like, if we're going to, if we're going to look somewhere, one, like we have a general idea of what metrics may potentially help you get out. And like, that's going to be in a stripped down setting because one, like if you're going to go, explore in some ways i think you can still be fairly representative and explore but in certain times especially like pitchers like they're not overly comfortable just like ripping out a new grip with the dude standing down there like in the batter's box right so like taking taking that out may allow them and free them up to now go explore in different ways and i think it's actually 
really cool concept is using the, that kind of data and exploring with that to learn how to manipulate the ball and like, see, okay, if I do this, this happens like this is now I get this much movement this way or that much movement that way, or even you can take it. And I, I know I played with this concept, like, like having guys explore all different ways to move the ball. Like, all right, I'm going to try to make it have more vertical depth. Now, all right, now I'm going to try to make more horizontal on this one. And like, now you're becoming a master manipulator of the ball. It may not be your ideal pitch based on your arsenal, but like, it's hard to not have pitches when you know how to do everything to the baseball. And I think that's almost like a little you Darvish in a way. Cause you Darvish like has a litany of pitches. And I think he just explores and creates and almost has like different variations of his stuff. And I think he can match that to the context a little bit, which is kind of a cool way to kind of think about pitching too. Um, but, but yeah, I think, I think it is important to take yourself out of context at times to, to explore and potentially find something else you could use within again, like you have to keep it in the idea of like, we want to use this in a game context. That's what we're going towards, not just a metric. Like we're still trying to get out. And I think keeping that in mind is really important, but you can take it out of context. If you keep that in mind that the whole point is to bring it back into context. That's it. Yeah. And, the way that I've been, I was kind of thinking about this is that, at least especially for pitchers, the way they kind of want to approach this is kind of the same way that a comedian approaches, like their craft. Like you develop all these different sort of jokes or pitches, and then when you go out and then like you get you get some sort of hitters or some hitters to stand in, and you now start utilizing those and seeing which which ones land, which ones actually are deceptive. Uh, which ones do they hit well? Which types of guys hit these balls well? You know, and which ones does this actually, this pitch perform well against? Like, and, and so to me, it's just like a, a comic will go out early and just like tell a whole bunch of different jokes and then see which ones land with the crowd. And then those are the ones he runs with. And so to me, that's, that's how pitchers need, should approach the kind of their development of like, okay, when you get into this part of the off season, which we're, most guys are now getting into of November, December, January. Um, and they're not, they're very in the kind of the early stages of the off season, um, or starting to get ramped back up now start playing with a bunch of different pitches and doing pitch design and see how many different pitches you can come up with. And then once you have a bunch of different pitches, you go, go use them against batters and then start paring down and finding out which ones actually are ones that you can use effectively to get hitters out or to make hitters miss or get weak contact. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's times where you can even, like, I've seen this utilized a lot. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's always utilized in the right way. And I think this is where it's it dangerous, but you can have potentially like knowing there's a specific metric that you like, we know has worked for certain pitchers. Like if you get this to happen, like you're probably going to have some success, but it's still probably, and we still need to see that within context. And like, as long as the focus is not like the end goal is just a metric like that is, a capability that may potentially take us to be able to get outs a little easier if my slider does this or my slider gets this kind of spin and this kind of movement, right? So that's that's the thing where I think a lot of people will chase that. But if that's all you chase and you're trying to force yourself down it, if you if you can't possibly do it and you can't find a way to do it, like constantly trying to go after it and go after it and like changing yourself to do it, like it may not be the best for you. It may not be the best authentic version of yourself if you're just cramming yourself into a metric i guess because i've seen guys just go all out for a metric and then like actually create a worse version of themselves because like they just thought this metric would work better with their arsenal it didn't necessarily work sometimes it does 
but sometimes it doesn't and finding just like, Hey, what's my best way to get out? What's a potential way for me to, to open up my arsenal and then bring it into the game context and find that out. And I think we need to, I think I've seen a trend slightly in this direction, but we need to test that earlier on in the off season, like for sure. And I think that's, that's one thing I've been encouraged by looking at. There's a lot more live at bats going on and stuff like that, but, like as long as we're doing that, I think you'll be in a decent shape when you're when you're thinking decontextualized work. As long as we're like our goal is to get there into the context as quick as we can. Robert, what do you got? Any thoughts on on this so far, and and how we can utilize? How can we better utilize metrics um, for the for player development and harness the analytics that 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 is now becoming much more prevalent or prevalent. Uh, within within the game of baseball, I mean, especially at the pro level, but I think it, it's also trickling. Like the the findings at the pro level are trickling down to, you know, at least to college, if not high school. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is there just needs to be a level of education to these kids because again, if you're chasing one metric, there's a lot of downside. Oh, I want my we learn to have this or, you know, like if uh, someone goes to a certain event and said, and they find out that, you know, their spin rate is 3000 RPMs. What is, what does that mean? Oh, I have a great breaking ball. I'm going to start throwing. Well, may, you know, just because you have 3000 RPMs doesn't mean you have a great breaking ball. And that's why I want to bring up like spin rate because, a couple of years ago at the MLB level, like we were like, you know, that's the next big thing, having a high spin rate. But it turns out that there isn't that relationship from spin to movement. It can aid movement, but then once they remove the sticky stuff, it's like it doesn't necessarily make that huge of a difference. So I think the biggest thing is just education, um, being willing to challenge kind of the theories being able to challenge your own theories, there, there has to be times where it's like, okay, you know, I believe in this, but what if we viewed it this way? So like, oh, you know, I'm a proponent of bat speed. Well, what if we look at bat speed and compare it to bat-to-ball skill? Or what if we look at bat speed and compare it to you know, swing decisions, things like that? Do you know, have, has anybody actually done that? looking at bat speed relative to bat to ball skills. I mean, cause that is literally the argument that most people make for why more bat speed. If you have more bat speed, you have more time to see the ball. And if you have more time to see the ball, then you can hit it. You'll have better chance of hitting it. Or, and I mean, in theory that kind of makes sense, but I also see it as if you got better bat speed, you may just swing through the zone faster. And so your ability to adjust to the ball you're just going to be on and off the ball faster. Like, I don't know that, that to me seems to be like one of the, one of the possible solutions as well. Like does, is that having that definitely improves the, the action uh, capabilities of the, of the person or what's the, it's not, it's kind of like degrees, degrees of freedom. Baker, you're, you're more in this world than I am right now. Um, in terms of all the terminology. So you have action capabilities and then you have your degrees of freedom that are based upon, you know what I mean? Like, so like now that you have basically another degree of freedom here, 
Like you have more to work with. I think I'm talking about action capabilities, right? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, mean uh, yeah, yeah. Swing faster. You have more. You have more tools basically in your tool belt to like work with. Yeah, and I think broader it, range. Yeah, I think it goes goes back to like the idea. If I swing faster, then I can technically wait longer, supposedly, to pick up more information, and there may be more affordances in the in the environment for me to act upon because I could wait later. Well, that's true or not? I don't. I don't necessarily think. I mean, it, it very simply it seems right. Right. I can wait longer, so I can see the ball more. I'm less susceptible to to like seeing break or seeing break to not seeing break or like not like tunneling fooling me or like i know that's what rob gray was talking about in one of his recent podcasts but yeah i don't know i don't know if there's been studies that actually prove that or it's just like simple thinking because it makes sense like if i can swing faster i can technically wait longer so i can get more information which may open up other possibilities i would not have seen to act upon if i had been had the swing sooner you know mm-hmm. right and then there's that there's that side of it too because i know in my time at quincy i never kind of put this to fruition, but something I observed, this is just an observation. And again, take take this with what you will, but whenever I would see bad speeds go up, typically the uh, on-plane efficiency using blast data would go down. Mm-hmm. And so let's say, you know, players, whenever players average bad speed was around 65 miles an hour, with blast, his on-plane efficiency was seventy percent. Is a good, good way to look at it. Um, if your bat is on-plane seventy percent through the swing, but when they would go up to say seventy miles an hour, they typically drop to like sixty-five or sixty. Uh, again, it was just an observation. The problem was like we couldn't use blast in the game, and so you don't really know the exact. We need to ask some of those uh, teams that have been like, because I've seen, I mean, I've seen some, some D1 teams with guys up to bat with the uh, last sensors on. And so I think it'd be interesting to, to see what those, those numbers are. I mean, in the same way, it'd be interesting to see if there's any correlation between increased bat speed and contactability. Um, I mean, you would have to get the right sample um, or sample population to, to get some good numbers, but that you could actually uh, draw some good conclusions from. Cause obviously if you, if you're comparing like guys that are throwing 74, you know, hitting off of guys throwing 74 is not the same as talking about guys trying to hit off guys throwing 85 or even 90 plus. So it's, it's much, it's much a different thing. Well, yeah. And like the, the side of it too, is like to your point, like when you have differences in velo, like sometimes players will, with a slower pitcher will like gear up and be like, Oh, I'm going to hit this as far as I can and swing as hard as I can. Usually what happens when they swing as hard as they can, they, everything goes out the window. Like their bats not on plane. And if it got in that exact teeny tiny spot, they wouldn't make contact, but they didn't because they're just folks about swinging as hard as I can. Well, I mean, I wonder how much that changes your ability to connect with the information. Um, yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. I think yes. What do you, what do you sacrifice just to swing harder? I think that's a that's an interesting because I think that you can bring it to pitching too. It's like just to throw harder. What are you sacrificing? Because I remember when I was just and I still like well again the mound occasion like when I'm just trying to throw as hard as I possibly can, 
Like there's a batter standing there, but like I'm not connecting to anything about him. Like I'm just throwing the ball towards home and like I'm hoping I blow the pitch by this guy. And I remember doing that. Like I literally remember like there was no information I was connecting to minus like I'm throwing this ball as hard as I freaking can to that catcher versus like a pitcher who's connecting to the batter where now I'm skillfully throwing this pitch. All right, I'm going to throw this pitch in a way where I'm going to make sure I'm on his hands. I'm going to throw this pitch where he's going to be reaching for it and I'm connecting to the batter in a much different way or like I'm going to, I'm going to blow this fastball by him where it's right above his hands inside. Like that's connecting to who's right there versus like, I think I sacrifice when I'm just trying to throw as hard as I can. I sacrifice the ability to pick up what's actually out there to act upon. And like the only thing I'm acting upon is like, I'm throwing this as hard as I can. And then you get into the higher levels and balls like leave the bat pretty fast when that's all you're trying to do. And like you throw in a pretty good region for them to hit. Right. So it's like, I'm not being very skillful with pitching anymore. And I do think it goes to that a little bit. Like I'm not picking up information nearly as well. Because all I care about is moving as fast as I can, throwing as hard as I can in this one moment. It's, I think it'd probably be similar to hitting. Yeah. And it, at least on that element of it to with, as far as pitching goes, almost think that having a target to throw to like what to your intention too of the hitter. Like yeah. I think right when it comes to coordination, it's about where, what am I coordinating to? And I don't know. I haven't thought about it in the way that you put of like coordinating to the batter, because yeah. to me, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to coordinate to the batter necessarily. I mean, a little bit, but I'm more trying to coordinate to where I want to put the ball. Well, I think that makes sense. Yeah. But I get I what you're saying. Like it, it it's because it in my head, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about like what my coordination is to the target I'm trying to hit, but what's shaping that and shaping the, what I'm trying to do with the ball is the batter. Yeah. You know? And so what's a better orientation, like is a better orientation throwing my pitches in a way where I'm going to make the batter do something, or is it better that I'm just throwing the pitch that's called to a target and I'm, on the line of thinking right now could change, but I'm the better orientation and for me to pick up good information is for me to throw pitches to make the batter do something. Like I'm going to get this, I'm going to fish this guy or I'm going to freeze him or like, I'm not going to let him, I'm not going to let him hit this. I'm going to get him to back off and I'm going to land it in. And that's why I talked about one of our guys recently is like, what's a better get me over a get me over where I see curveball called and I'm just throwing it somewhere in the zone trying to land it. Or I'm a right on right, and I'm going to get the righty to to back off and it land there. What's a better get me over pitch? Like the better one is getting the batter to move because of how I moved and landing it there. Just think about what that may potentially do for all my other pitches later too. If I've already gotten the flinch once and I landed it, and like those probably aren't going to get hit. Like especially if you're making the batter do exactly what you want them to do. I think it's a better orientation of how how you go about like having your intentions to pitch and how you shape your pitches versus. We're playing a target sport. It would be great if like we got points for hitting a target, but we don't. Uh, I mean, that's the other thing that I've, I've been on more recently is the game doesn't care. The game doesn't care that you throw plus stuff. It doesn't nope. care. The game doesn't care that you have elite bat speed. The game doesn't care that you have elite exit velo. It's just, yeah, it, oh, it doesn't yeah, care. You, know, you hit all your spots, all game. Game doesn't care. No. I and, threw exactly and, where I wanted to go. Oh, coach, it was a good pitch. I threw a great pitch. You just hit it. I was like, okay, so it wasn't a great pitch because he absolutely destroyed it. Like, it was a bad <laughs> right. collection as far as you, you missed something, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's, I think, the part that is where a lot of coaches are right now. And this is where, where too, why I want to bring it up in, in terms of, like, the, the analytics. Like, I, I, I feel like people are misplacing, um, have, like, misplaced 
emphasis on in terms of analytics in terms of like they there's like based upon the findings that an analyst has found like this is the gospel truth on how things are and that's where i'm like i think an adjustment needs to be made so that analytics can serve its proper role of assisting in the search process for more functional solutions and but it's not the end all be all and that's that's where i see a lot of play like people or, or organizations making mistakes is they are like, well, the metrics say this. And so, well, the metrics say that your fastball isn't or is getting hit a lot. So you should throw your fastball less instead of asking the question, like, why is your fastball getting hit a lot? Instead of just taking away uh, a, a, a tool from the athlete, like now, now they have to like, so for example, I can't remember, uh, can't remember if this actually well with McCullers a little bit in in the World mm -hmm. Series of the fact that he was just going two breaking balls for the majority of his at bats against hitters, and I don't think they're like even if he had just used his fastball to try to get them off his breaking ball, like that's that's where guys can just adjust if you are just a two pitch pitcher. I mean, some guys can be successful as two pitch pitchers, but if that's not your if you haven't found a functional solution for for that, uh, having that that tool set, then it becomes very hard um, for you to have sustained success. Because I bet you McCullers is really good when he has all three pitches working, and he can start messing with guys more. And this is where, to me, the the mentality of like, well, just just trust the metrics. It's like, well, that works up into a point because the the thing is, is that your opponent is a is an alive, adapting, resisting, like somebody who's trying to actively work against you. Like they're going to catch on to that and adapt, and that's where, to me, just saying, just saying that, oh well, the numbers say, or this, the analytics say, it's going back to like they're using a model of the world when the going back to I think that the quote that I said before, the world is its own best model, and it, it's not even my own quote. I have to go pull. It's, it's from a physicist. Um, had had basically said that in terms of like talking about. Um, living beings. And so I think that's the thing that we have to remember because analytics can be a very powerful tool to help you in your search process and to like with how you want to attack. But it goes back to, you know, once you get into the game and people were talking about during, during the world series about having a plan. And I think plans are good. You should have a plan, but once you get in there, like then you need to start being, pick up information about like what's actually going on. Instead of being like, well, the plan says this, so therefore, if I just execute this plan the way that we had talked about it before, like, it's just going to work out. Like, well, if they start changing what they're doing and your plan doesn't match what they're doing, then it's going to be, it's going to be rough for you. And I think that's where you see sometimes teams just lose simply because the other team didn't adjust to what the other team was doing. Or one team wasn't adjusting to what the other team was doing, and that's why they lost. Yeah, the the idea of adaptability, I think that's that speaks a lot to um, other stuff I've been thinking a lot about, and how do how do we create environments again? This is a whole other rant, so I'm not going to go into it. But like, how do you how do you how do you create athletes who are adaptable under any circumstance? Because that's what it comes down to. It's like you want solutions under any context, under any situation that will actually function. So 
yeah, I don't, I don't know if we should change subjects on that and dig into that, but yeah, I think that's, that's extremely important. I mean, I mean, cause it's, it's a, uh, the quote that I had was like from Rommel about in terms of like, if his plan got him into contact with the enemy, then he, he would just play it by ear, you know, and, and through sense and tactical feel like a duelist, you know, like, and I thought that was really insightful in terms of, okay, use your analytics to know, get to know your enemy a little bit more, your opponent and yourself. But once you get in there, you're going to have to understand which parts of the plan to adhere to and which parts to let go of, you know, like th that's where, for example, too, of thinking like, okay, once you start pitching, like, okay, what is it that I'm picking up right now? When can I deviate from the plan? When can I, when do I need to adhere to the plan? And this is where to me, the the expert right the elite players there is a higher order variable that they're attuning to that helps them navigate in terms of like when to deviate and when to you know like what's guiding their behavior so to speak and so that's where to me like a plan is just an initial set of conditions that you're working with and then if if the conditions stay the same then you can just keep executing your plan but if they change are you going to be able to pick up that information and then adjust what you're doing? Because I think it comes back to like the way that I think about it is in terms of military. Okay. If you understand what your objective is, what your goal is, then whatever plan you have, okay, that you set up, if things change, but your objective stays the same, that doesn't change. Like, so to me, that's your higher order variable. And so you just adjust your plan based upon your given circumstances that are going to get you there. And like, if you just, you know, play with like, for example, how the seals and, and a lot of special forces are like, okay, we're going to come up with the first simplest plan of attack and go right now. If, if I remember correctly, they just do simple, quick planning when they're in a combat zone and just move. And then they keep reiterating and adjusting the plan as they go. I mean, that, that to me is, is the best way to, to approach once you're into the game, because I think that's where kind of I, I didn't watch the last game of the the world series but it sounded like the phillies were especially offensively were kind of um what's the what's the word searching not searching to me it was like they were kind of getting desperate and kind of grasping and for 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 solutions against the pitchers you know they didn't have a way to adapt in a systematic way in some ways because I think there, at least what I'm trying to help our hitters understand is there should be a kind of a systematic way that you make adjustments in the box or from at bat to at bat, you know, based upon what, what you perceive is, is happening. And so, you know, letting, letting the ball be your feedback or just your swing be your feedback and how you're relating to that, to the pitcher and to the ball, like the, you need to be able to make adjustments based upon a swing that you just took on a ball, whether you followed it off or missed it completely. Okay, do you do you know what you should do next? You know, if you're getting another pitch, and like, what should you focus on? What should you, um, how should you attack this next next pitch that you see? So, the the last thing that I'm going to throw in there, probably uh, cut out, is, but I'm curious your guys' thoughts on this. So, I I was working with one of um, our two A guys who's now just a pitcher, but we would just trade back and forth pitching to each other. And the way that I kind of put it was this is this is a way of sparring or rolling. 
And so to me, because we weren't going, we weren't going full distance. I, I think we we're probably at like 45, 50 feet. Um, and he's just up there, not throwing like a hundred percent mixing in breakers and throwing different things. And I'm just like this to me, if we could do more of this, this would, you'd be unbelievably way better because to me, this idea of when you spar and you roll, you're not actually trying to beat the other guy up. You're not trying to bury him and get him out, so to speak. Instead, you're trying to, if, if we're good sparring partners, we're trying to challenge the other person. We're exploring while we're sparring. We're trying out different things. And then sometimes we have to ramp up and down the intensity so that it, it stays in a place where we can both learn and grow. And so sometimes you have to, as maybe you're more talented than the guy you're sparring with, you actually might have to dial it back a little bit and not carve him quite as much and be a little bit more creative with how you're interacting with them. And I think that's, I, I, I want to understand MMA culture or fighting culture a little bit better because there's where the best growth is, is like, there's a culture of that. I don't know. Did you, did you listen to that guy talk at uh, SMSC? at the sport movement wow. skill conference who is a, an MMA guy. You know, now like that was like one of the only ones that I forget what I had to do, but like, I was almost there for all. He's one I meant to go back and listen to, but I've actually been listening to a lot of like naturally with Conor McGregor. Like I've been intrigued with fighting and like, I watched his most recent documentary. Sean actually sent it to me on Twitter. Um, and then like just some other stuff. Listen, I've listened to like Sean breakdown, Israel sonnet, um, I would, I would mess up his last Adesanya. name. Adesanya. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been, because I actually do a little bit of sparring with her pitchers, like in some form or fashion, like that stole straight from Rafe Kelly, but we did it today. Like you tuck the thumbs, curl the fingers, and you're like basically playing body shots. And like the whole idea of like, because I move, you move and like trying to, trying to play that, that idea. And then like the, I wasn't thinking about like sparring for, for baseball, the the hard part is, man, it's like, like, I really like that idea because I do think we would pick up extra different affordances. There's another concept. I forget what, and she, it, it was from Shona Sean's blogs. I was like, I wish, I wish something speed. And I forget, I, w I wish I, maybe I actually have it. Up. No, I don't have enough. Dang it. Um, but it was something about. I think I know kind speed. of what you're talking about. It was like mm -hmm. roughly 80% of the, of mm -hmm. the, their actual speed is where they may pick up different things. And that's where they lived a lot. Um, as far as, as far as where they practice. And I was like, how can like putting that to pitching? Like, we, I think you could like play off the sparring idea where you could pitch at like 80% to a hitter, but still like, you're still trying to like get him to do what you want him to do based on how you're throwing your pitches. And I think there's a ton of value in that. It's kind of like the idea of sparring, but I think the the limitation in that is just like, you have like, we'll have 18 to 20 pitchers. We have one game mound, right? we don't have a cage that can actually match that really well, just where we're at. The cages are kind of small. Maybe we can get a mound in there and it'd be a shortened version of it, which I think still has value. But like, that's a limitation in my opinion, because I think there's a ton of value in it. Like I always thought there was like having pitchers throw to the hitters in a setting like that, where you're kind of sparring and you're just, you're working at like an 80% range potentially. And, like, well, and this is the, the yeah. Well, and, well, and two, I also think that it's important too, that the pitchers or even the hitters um, mess with how, like, so for example, if I'm pitching and I'm throwing to a guy, I'm not trying to carve him. 
I'm actually trying to every now and then. So for example, based upon my sequence or whatever, I might give, I might specifically try to throw one in there that I think he can hit to yeah. see if he's ready. Like there's, there's that element of it too, of like, I can, if pitchers, I think should understand that when they throw and they start mixing a little bit and then they throw a cookie in there after a guy's seen a bunch of different stuff, he's not always ready to hit that pitch. And I've seen that plenty of times where they'll take a swing and they'll just miss it Yeah, on a pitch that they should crush and that they've hit well in the past, but simply because of the, the previous pitch sequence, they're mm -hmm. just not ready for it. And so I think that's even good for your offense too, is like just yeah, understanding sure. that it's not, it's not when you're sparring, it's not just about, about you. And that's, that's the thing that I think is the important piece of like mm -hmm. when you're doing this and you have your own guys doing it, it's not about necessarily trying to carve the other guy up. It is, you should throw some pitches in there and see too, like, okay, if I throw a ball in there for him to hit, can I sequence it in such a way that like, because it, it'll help you understand when, when you can just straight attack a hitter and not worry about like, if I hang this pitch, if I leave this pitch over the middle of the plate, like knowing when to take that risk of like, I'm just going to lay this sucker in there and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. Um, and so like to, to me, that's, that's one of the elements of, and I'm not sure what on the hitting side to do. I think if like you're crushing a guy, maybe you need to change where you're like what you're doing in the box, you know, maybe where you're standing, um, maybe start playing with some, some different uh, moves or whatever, and just seeing what else you can explore and just make it harder for yourself. You know, yeah. maybe starting with like a different count, whatever. I, I think that's, I mean, I've always had this idea that, Pitchers and hitters should actually train together. Um, yeah, I, and and, and that makes sense, right? It just makes sense. It does. And the other the other element of it too is I actually think the pitchers don't need to throw and shouldn't throw at the full sixty feet six inches when they're sparring, just simply because mm -hmm. it's really hard to like. Again, your accuracy is different. You know, and just when you're when you're all the way at sixty feet six inches, and then you're how how hard you have to throw it just to get it to the plate is also increased just at that distance. Sure. So if you just bring it in a little bit, and that's where to me, what I've noticed is when you throw at thirty feet or whatever whatever it is most BP throwers throw at, guys are like even when I throw you a breaking ball, guys still seem to be able to hit that fairly well. But then when I back it up to 45 feet, all of a sudden those breaking balls get a lot harder to see out of the hand. A lot harder to see out of the hand. It's harder to see the spin. Um, and and I think that's where more deception happens when when over that course of like the ball flight being a lot longer and having to travel a further distance. I really think that is something that people don't appreciate when it comes to the hitting side of it. And so I think that's why for me, it's like, I would actually, if I could put the pitchers at least, I don't know what the minimum distance is, Robert, that would be more for, again, this is, this is part of the whole point of like this podcast is understanding where, where does an analyst become really, really useful to me? It's right here of like, where can we figure out where that sweet spot is in terms of ball flight of, okay, when, when is that kind of that tipping point where 
guys can start to see spin because this is this is one of the other things where like we're like oh they can't see spin and it's like i don't believe that for a second i know some guys can see spin the question is is when do they start to see spin because as the ball gets closer guys who have good vision can probably start to pick that stuff up guys with better vision might pick it up earlier but still most guys at some point will start to to see that and so maybe not most guys but there'll be some and so like to me this is something that I think research and analytics would be really good at trying to parse out where is this balance point that we begin to see an effect come into play as far as the distance of the pitcher away from the, the hitter. Yeah, I think, well, I think it's as us as coaches need to uh, engage in a little exploration to see where that potentially maybe and based on how the hitters coupling their actions to the pitchers but yeah no i think there's a ton of value in that because i did it a little bit when i was just trying to ramp up the the information the haters were getting at our inspiration academy like for the playoffs and it was like i would i would actually go in the base of the mound there's still an l screen there so i certainly wasn't doing that without an l screen but like i was throwing my pitches and like it felt at least for me like as a pitcher like somewhat realistic like i was at a much lower intensity I could still throw my pitches. I could still make a move. I could still use pretty much my entire arsenal in some ways. And I could even like explore and create a little bit in different ways. And like the better hitters were able to kind of couple their actions and go at it. Like I kind of carved in the beginning. So I had to like find that fine tune, like where, where should I be living? And maybe I should have backed myself up. Um, but I still think there was, there's a lot of value in them getting challenged at that. Since, I mean, we, were, we did face a 97 mile an hour arm, like, like that probably had some value in there, but I also found the term movement. It's ownership speed. The, yes. Like the, the yes. idea of the movement ownership speed. And I think, I think that's a little bit, I've been, I was thinking about that a lot for pitching. Like where is that? And how do I keep that a little more coupled to the actual information? So like we do a lot of stand-ins. We do a lot of umpires, but like guys swinging is just so much better. And it's just like, that's, that's the actual information. And I've noticed even with stand-ins, even with, moving around stand-ins, even with a stand-in and an umpire, like our pitchers were not coupling their actions to certain affordances. I thought they would. I thought they would take some invitations based on certain hitters like that were presenting like this in this situation. Like I should, we should have done this. And I don't know why we missed that affordance in the landscape. And I was like, it's because we don't have batters and they're not, even if I have a stand-in, they're not connecting to the information the same way. They could very much just become a rote repetition, like just trying to throw your pitches. Even there's, if I there's do. no consequence. Like exactly. I think that's the other element of other than walks. Like we, we, I still right. have like, that idea in there, which I think was is extremely important. But yeah, and that's where another thing I was thinking. Again, we're we're going to go down a whole rabbit hole in this. But the, the other thing I was thinking too is like, can I put like does this does this play if I can't get a hitter for pitchers? Does this play if I were to if I were to give them context about who this hitter is? and like what they could potentially do ahead of time. And then they throw a pitch that like based on the parameters we set up about the hitter they're facing, like meets the criteria of like that ball may have been crushed. Like actually like that ball is crushed. Like, all right, man's on second, man on second here. And does that, is that even enough of a consequence? And does that, would that help them couple their actions more? I think maybe possibly, I don't know, but it's definitely not the same. Well, I mean, cause to me, there's an element of, when you have a batter who's swinging in there, it begins to highlight certain information for sure. and moves, like movements that the batter makes. It highlights that it it makes that information speak louder. Where whereas when they're just taking and they're just standing in there, I think 
sometimes that information, again, back to there's no consequence there. It doesn't then make that information um, more salient or it doesn't, it doesn't highlight it as much. Just, it's just information there. You know, because it doesn't specify anything to them. Yeah. Because again, going back to like, what is it their goal that mm-hmm. they're trying to do there? Analyzing. Because that's where I'm wondering how much does is this stuff like? What are the metrics that I really want to look at? Because I mean, I have Johnson pulling a ball. Where's Johnson? Uh, probably a second round. Oh, yeah. He pulls the ball at like 78. I think it was something. You're like, whoa, that didn't even feel like it swung harder. I'm like, but dude, it's inside your bat speed. It's just going to measure it faster on an inside swing, I'm going to assume. Inside and low are, are generally what I've seen in the past. There yeah. you go. There's your 78. The the lower the pitch, the higher the bat speed. To an extent, obviously, like right because that wasn't that that seventy eight was not that low of a pitch. Oh, yeah, that was low enough. Also, a uh, trick for you. I see that you're like commenting like timestamps. You can actually like. Uh, use YouTube's embedding to like automatically go to it. That makes sense. No. Okay. Explain. I've seen I'll that before. You. I've definitely seen that. I mean, I was going to put it in the comment or in the uh, description, but I, I just wasn't logged. I was logged in with my account and not the 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 school one. Oh yeah. Oh, what are embeds? Oh, you're talking like the the things down here? Not necessarily here. I'll show you. I gotta Yeah, do a out. share screen. Well, I can type it in on the uh oh, the chat. I can type it in. I'm just trying to think of the exact terminology of it, and I don't want to tell you the wrong terminology. But you're saying that on plane efficiency was maybe something more to look at. Right. Cause like in, in my experience with, you know, the guys I've worked with, when we see like bat trend, bat speeding trending up, mm-hmm. right. Like whether it be a heavy bat program or, you know, like a, a, you know, heavy bat, light bat, whatever kind of program that you want to use. I typically found that, you know, as your bat speed increases, your, on plant efficiency will typically decrease. And what does that mean exactly? Well, your bat doesn't stay in the zone as long. And you'd be really good at crushing that specific pitch in that specific spot. But again, when we want to talk about being adaptable, dexterous athletes, um, being able to adapt and adjust to certain pitches is where a metric like on-point efficiency is key because if your bat stays in zone longer, you can still adjust and still make a quality swing. Uh, uh, that may not be the best terminology for it, but we'll we'll go with it. Uh, 
on that end to be able to, you know, increase your chances of getting a hit or something like that. It doesn't work when I do that, huh? It doesn't like it when I make it full screen. Because, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit questioning some of these negative attack angles, that, which then makes me question how correct are or is the on-plane score. That's what I want to know. Like, how accurate are these things? Now, having used this again, because when I first used it with my guys at DCTC a long time ago, well, a couple of, I don't know, I want to say three, three-ish years ago, two, three years ago, the and comparing it to Zap, I saw zero negative attack angles on guys that I thought would have negative attack angles. Everybody was positive attack angles. On black and now black. I'm starting to see more negative attack angles. And some of it makes sense where I'm seeing it. And then it just makes me wonder, okay, this is where, Robert, you would probably have better data for this. But now I need to figure out, okay, do I want to get Rapsodo hitting or hit tracks? And now I, tr I have like all these metrics lined up and we can look at exit velo and bat speed and attack angle and all these sort of things that we can then begin to see, okay, if you're negative attack angle, does that mean maybe Raps or yeah, Rapsodo would be better because then you could start to see the spin, get the spin metrics going, but you could see the ball spin. And then see, you know, are you creating too much spin and the ball is just like hanging up there? Because from the naked eye, it seems to me guys that swing down on the ball and they clip it a ton, they put a ton of spin on the ball and it just kind of hangs up there. It doesn't, the ball doesn't seem to just jump off the bat and just go. Instead, it just seems to go up and it just seems to hang up there. And then you're like, wow, that ball took forever to, to go however far it went and its hang time was really long. And so that's where I'd want to know, does a negative attack angle produce more of those spinny fly balls versus getting on plane with it, hitting it more true, produces that nice, you know, rocket, I want to say rocket line drive where the ball just seems to like fly off the bat. Well, from like a, I want to say a physics standpoint, but like assume the ball is uh, right-handed curveball is breaking, right? Um, you know, you let's say you can physically see the seam orientation moving, and then you have a negative attack angle. When you make contact with it, you would assume that it would kind of the spin would tra transverse. I think is the word, and then would create that you know that very spinny baseball that you were mentioning. But again, in my world of being an analyst, it's by how much does that uh, spin change? Right. Well, and that's that's too where I was also wondering. Okay, now that we're seeing some of these, like it's really cool to see, at least to me, like we get batted ball information connected with the bat speed that we see. Because that ball, these balls seems like they're coming off the bat pretty well. And that was only a 64 bat speed and the ball seemed to just jump off his bat. Granted it's in the cage, but still those balls seem to 
like be flying off the cage, and that was what sixty four. So that's that's where I'm kind of curious because this guy's going to be one of our better. He should be a more of a power hitter, but he's going to be more of a contact singles doubles type guy for us. Um, and he has fairly decent contact ability. But his bat speed now, just isn't... My uh, question is, when you say fairly dude, decent guess, contact ability, how are, you, how are you measuring? I'm doing the old coach thing in terms of what I've seen on the field. So if you were to look at his spray chart, okay. you're going to see a lot of line drives. Um, and and he's probably going to work more of the gaps. So, you know, and that's, that's what I mean of like, I'm sure his, his, if he were to go and take his hardest swing, he'd probably be in the 70 range, but you can see him to with guy, like this is why I wanted to do it off a machine or something that's a little bit more challenging. Cause you begin to see, I know some of these guys have higher bat speeds. If I were to put them on a tee and have them swing as hard as they could, He'd easily be in the, you know, in the 70 range. No problem. And I had another kid who has had decent exit velo on flight scope in like the 90 to 93. Um, his top was maybe he touched 70 once. So that's where, you know, for example, you look at Johnson. Johnson hits off this machine all the time. So that's that's why I assume his bat speed is going to be in the higher. It's going to be closer to his true max because he's more comfortable hitting off the machine and letting it eat. Whereas these guys, um, the freshmen, aren't as comfortable hitting off the machine. Their numbers are going to be a little bit lower. But like for example, if I were to go to Stifter here, I'm trying to scroll on the uh, on the screen share. Great. Um, <laughs> His 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 EV or his bat speeds are like nothing special, like low sixties, upper fifties. And I was, you know, doing using flight scope in the indoor. His exit velos were topping out at like eighty six. But then, because I've used it in game with him, he's he's hit like a ninety four or something in game. So your question is, is what everybody talks about bat speed, right? Bat speed, bat speed, bat speed, because it equals exit below. This, this kid, this kid doesn't have elite bat speed, but I know he can hit the ball 90 plus miles an hour off the bat. And he, he's going to be mostly a singles doubles guy. So that's where, you know, I, I'm kind of wondering. I'm asking the question, how much does it matter when I know and I've seen what guys in game exit velo is? You know, in terms of like what numbers I'm seeing here, how do I how do I evaluate this in light of those things, right? Like he's mid 60s, 64, 65 kind of was his top end range, but you could see his range was like 58 to 64, 65. My the one question I have re regarding that is um, when you change batters, are you switching out bat length and sizes? 
Um, they they're all swinging thirty threes. Oh, so everyone's swinging 33, 33-30? Yeah, yeah and I'll be I'll be honest when when I first started doing it, and this is the this was before I got the live stream to work. It was on a thirty two or something like that, and so they were probably nerfed a little bit. But then I eventually changed it and found a thirty three bat and changed it to a thirty three, and so they're all thirty three, whatever, thirty three thirties. Right. At least I think that's what it was supposed to be. I know in, in my experience, like with a higher, like let's say you, let's say a batter has a 34, but on blast he has a 33. Um, you're going to tend to see like higher exit or not exit, bat speed. Because bat speeds with a longer bat that. when you're actually using a shorter one. Yeah. Um, and then vice versa, you're going to see slower when they think you're swinging heavier, even though I might be mixing that up. No, it's sounds about right. Um, but then in terms of like what you were mentioning, you know, oh, he's got, you know, like the player you were just mentioning, uh, how you said, you know, he get like 94 max exit velocity, but you don't see bat speeds in the, you know, high setting it's again it's wondering if how much of the bat speed that you use in practice training really applies into a game setting because like what i found at quincy was if we were swinging roughly 68 miles an hour on bat speed on average that would equate to roughly 55 56 in a game because again, the, the setting is different. You more or less know. And Baker can be able to comment on kind of like this sport because it kind of ties in with pitching, where you may not have as much effectiveness when you're throwing like max fastball velocity. And the same can apply for swinging a baseball bat. But there are those tangible people that maybe for that one player, like maybe 60 is around his max bat speed. And like he's very good at basically swinging around his max, both in practice and games. So there's that, you know, subset of people that on the pitching side, you know, let's say their max fastball is 94, like they can command 92, 94, whereas some of them like fastball, max fastball is 94, doesn't know where it's going, but you drop them down to like 89, 91, they're a little bit more effective. Same applies here where, you know, you're not trying to swing as hard as you can. You're trying to swing in an effective manner where it can still be effective, but you're still like, again, there's, there's bat speed at a peak level, but then there's a controlled bat speed, which again, I'm not telling you like swing soft, but swing in a manner that allows you to still enhance what we looked at, what we found important was on plant efficiency. Makes sense. Cause yeah, this is, uh, we had it at 96 or whatever it was. It was the same kid in game. 96-4. Right? And this, this goes back to with him. He's not he's not going to be your home run type hitter guy. But he's going to hit. Like, I didn't think it was possible just based upon what I'd saw in the cage in the, in the early preseason and the exit velos that we were getting. And then going back to the to the bat speed. 
you know? They're like, there it is. Right. And like the, the common misconception, at least to the, the subset of people that know like the bat speed formula in terms of mm-hmm. like working back from exit velocity, the issue with that is that uh core or that collision coefficient, that point two, that's been tested on only wood bats. So metal bats apply a little bit different. And yeah. so you you need to adjust accordingly based upon that collision coefficient, which Again, it's more of like a, that's a bit above my knowledge in terms of like how to compute that um, in terms of, you know, what is exactly the collision efficiency of a metal bat compared to a wood bat. But again, that's another misconception. So that's why you might see like either A, lower bat speed numbers, B, higher bat speed numbers. I'm not sure, but there's still that misconception to that subset of people. Yeah, because I mean I've heard, and this would be curious to hear your thoughts. Wood bats, especially the ones that the pros use, may be actually a little bit hotter than the BB core bats that the college guys use right now. What are what are your thoughts on that? I've I've heard similar things, and I wouldn't be opposed to it. Again, like I'm not. This is all off speculation. Like I don't have a you know present data in front of me to say like yeah this this claim is supportive. But yeah, I, I believe that there is. But the one way we could test it theoretically, because think about it this way: you're at a JUCO right now, right? The NJCAA and the CCAA, CCCAA, are uh, metal bat JUCOs, but the NWAC in the Pacific Northwest, they use wood bats. So if you could do com- some kind of analysis where like, you take a group of teams in the NJCA and the CCAA, compare with a group of teams in um, the NWAC, then maybe you could start to see, oh, yeah, actually, you know, wood bats might be hotter. But I also think it's a type of wood bat. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you, if you grab one of the ash... Bats like Louisville Slugger that you can get at Dick's for what's now an absurd amount of money, but it used to be $20. I don't know how much it is now, but um, I mean, I, I would assume that those wood bats aren't nearly as hot as the maple, um, where Victus, like the top end bats that the pros are using today. Like I, th- those bats, like you just listen to the sound of the bat and how much it comes off. I wonder though if bat if the baseball bat bros have actually done a video um looking at this. It wouldn't surprise me if they have. <laughs> It'd be something interesting to look at. Baseball bat bros? I've never heard of them. Yeah, they, they go and they test different bats and they go in and they whether they go hit out on a field or go find a facility with a hit tracks or a rapsodo and they just do exit velo numbers based upon the different different bats that they're checking out so i mean there's there's some i feel like there's some real juice metal bats nowadays though i feel like bb i could be wrong because i'm a pitcher so i mean take it with a grain of salt but i feel like the bb core now isn't what bb core was like when i was started right that's that's fair it came out like junior senior high school and those are like those i felt like they're dead so i got like the goods i feel like the goods is kind of that thing's got some juice to it 
it feels it feels more like the old bastard to me. I don't know. And this is where it it, it might be, you know, where it things are changing, right? It, each new model of bat that comes out with aluminum. Yeah, but but I brought all this up because of what you were saying, Robert, in terms of the coefficient maybe being different. You know, it could be that the sweet spot's a little bit bigger on the metal bats than it is on the wood bats or vice versa. I don't know. And that's that's where I think it's it's interesting. And that's that's why I I keep coming back to it's good to have other metrics to kind of validate what the metrics that you're looking at. And I think this kind of goes into the topic that I wanted to cover today, which was Goodhart's law, where when you, you know, set up a metric as a target, you that and use it as a measure, it it's it what it it ceases to be what it what your goal is. I have to pull up this actual article, make sure I get get it right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I think I know what you're talking about. It's like when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a, a good, good measure. measure. Yeah. Yep. And I think, man, I, I'd be, I would love to get your thoughts first, Robert, on this before I go off on a tangent on the twins. I mean, there's, there's some validity to it. Like, I'd see it as, you know, like, oh, we only chase, you know, this thing, right? Like, oh, we only chase one thing, one thing, only bad speed. Right. Then again, I see the validity of it because now, hey, you're gonna you're gonna have guys that can swing really fast, maybe put up good exit velocity numbers, but in the grand scheme of things, like you're sacrificing something else. Maybe you're sacrificing, mm-hmm. you know, the adaptability of being able to spray the ball to various places, one, two, being able to just make contact in general. Um so I think I think in terms of like measures becoming targets, I think if it's the way I see it is if it's just one measure becoming a target, then yeah, it it fails to be a good measure. But if you kind of take a collection that kind of like in in a like checks and balances sort where like this metric is good, but you know, we need to have quality metric B to be able to validate in some way, metric A. So that's where I see on that end. Baker, you got any any thoughts? I mean, I want to slow you down here, but I feel like this is something I've, I've been talking a ton about, is like trying to figure out what the actual goal is, what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think a lot of guys, especially coming into the JUCO, like have their thoughts about what they need to work on, and that's what the one thing I've been collecting a ton. It's just kind of like, in my own way, just trying to get in their brains a little bit and always, always trying to get them to produce something that they're working on or building on. Like, they're, you're already good at this. We're building on this. We need to work on this to be the best pitcher you can be. So, like, I, I had them, like, submit this to me, and I'm going to continue to have them submit to me. But, like, you start noticing what, they, what they're what they caring about and what, they, what they're valuing while I'm trying to pe- kind of preach the idea and try to get, like, all, all that matters is that we're functional pitchers in-game, right? And, like, we are getting out. So, like, that's one thing I talk a ton about is like we're the outgetters and like just continue to hound. Like, I don't care how you do it. We got to, we got to find three outs as fast as we can find three outs. We got to find three outs. Um, all, all those metrics that we're chasing, like all feed into it. Even like a bunch of guys like, Oh, I need to get bigger. Okay. Well, great. That's, that's something 
that may be worth striving for. But if all we do is get bigger, I've seen plenty of people just get bigger and then they become a heck of a lot less functional. I've seen a heck of a lot of people like taking more calories and didn't get any better. I've seen a heck of a lot of people sell it for velocity, tick up the velocity, but they didn't get it better at pitching. So it's like trying to figure out how to keep people on target to what's actually the main goal and how to speed versus just like I'm selling out for this, losing sight of like what's actually important. And that's kind of kind of one thing I'm actually digging into now. And I thought that that thing that you sent us about about that very that very specific article was kind of fed right into what I was already talking about with time with our guys. Well, into what how I found it was one of those very serendipitous serendipitous things because somebody was posting about the twins and they didn't understand why Pagan is still pitching for the twins. And it's like, well, it's because the twins see that he has some of the like the top 10 and stuff. And it's like, yes, but the guy gives up too many runs. Like, right. Cause I, I think going off of what you said, I think you Baker, you, you made a good point of adding the caveat of get you, the whole job of the pitchers is to get outs as quickly as they can. And I think baked within that is the whole goal of a pitcher is to prevent runs, to minimize the number of runs given up. And I think it also depends upon your role, right? So for example, if you're a starter, you're afforded more of an opportunity to give up runs. It's not the same for a reliever. It's just, it's just the, the nature of what it is that we're asking you to do is to come in and basically not allow any runs, like one or none. I mean, most often. And when that's the case, then it becomes like with Pagan, okay, you've got great stuff, but you're not getting, you're, you're allowing too many runs. And, and this is where I think the analytics or the analytics side of it then needs to actually dig a little bit deeper. Like, why is he giving up a ton of runs, even though he's got great stuff? And I think that part is probably the part that's missing because I've talked with um, someone who's, who's been in similar organizations who they've, they've emphasized you know, certain things when it comes to the analytics. And then he started asking them basic questions of like, well, have you looked at, you know, the counts like, okay, so his fastball is getting hit. And then you just tell him that he can only throw four fastballs in a game or in an, sorry, in an per inning. And it's like, well, why is his fastball getting hit? Is it because he's falling behind too much and he's trying to get back into counts by using his fastball to get him back into counts? And that's where he's getting hurt. Or is it, you know, a certain location that he's throwing it? Um, can't remember what the the other things that he said, but they're all very like contextual baseball questions. It's like your analytics team should be able to tell you this and should have broken down further and done more homework to understand why is it that his fastball is getting hit so that you can better understand how to utilize that pitch. Because it's like, okay, if he just goes all, you know, breaking balls or sliders, then guys are just going to sit on the slider if they know that that's what's coming. And an example that I saw this past year was um, with the former team that I, I worked with at Missouri State, where one of our guys out of the pen, he was really, really good. And everybody knows he's slider, a slider guy. So he comes in out of the pen, and this year he didn't have as much success because I think guys just are si- practice hitting more sliders. Because right, this is something that that I think Cal Bodie has said on Twitter. Look, the the off speed usage is way higher now than ever. And if you go back to the premise that the, at, at the professional level and just even at the top collegiate level, 
guys who are there are the best adapters, right? They're the best at making adjustments out of anybody. And that's why they're, they're at the level that they're at. And so if you start throwing them more sliders or more breaking balls in general, they're just going to get better at hitting more breaking balls. And so then you're just going to come back to the other way and it's just going to be the seesaw back and forth. And if you really want to have, this is where, for example, looking at someone like um, Zach Greinke is, is really actually, it's fun to watch him pitch because he is always messing with the hitter. He's changing speeds. He's you know, pitching backwards or he's, he's basically throwing the pitch that he thinks that the hitter is not ready for or that's going to fool him or whatever. And so to me, that's where we actually need to get to. And that goes back to what, where, where like, if you just tell a guy that he can't use his fastball as much, then he can't use that as a weapon to set up his other pitches. And that's, that's some like, that's an old school baseball thing of like establish the fastball so that you can set up your other pitches. But I don't think you'd necessarily have to say that anymore of establish the fastball. You just use the fastball to set up, you know, your other pitches or use your other pitches to set up the fastball. And that's that's where to me, if we go back to an ecological approach, we don't want to overly constrain a player to have to to basically play the game with one hand tied behind their back. And I think that that happens too often to to players is we actually hamstring them when it comes to their ability to play the game. In my mind, what my goal is, is I'm trying to give them as many options and tools as possible to use or take into a game to find success and to be able to get outs, get hits, etc. Yeah, to go just to go off that last the last point, I think once you kind of like over constrain them, they're not even picking up the information they should be picking up anymore. Since like, like why would you? you you're losing. You're, you're basically taking away options, and now you're you're looking for opportunities to act or maybe select a certain pitch or throw a certain pitch in a certain area. And you you basically took one off the table, so now you're only looking for your your basically your intentions is to throw this one pitch, and your selection's gone way down. So you're not you've basically eliminated some information sources that you, there's no point of using them anymore. So it's like you're almost like not playing the game anymore, in my opinion. It's like a it's like a totally a totally different game when you're over constraining versus like what you're kind of talking about, like open them up, allow them to to explore different tools. And like one thing I've been thinking a ton ton about, I'd be curious kind of off of this kind of your thoughts because one thing i did two years ago is i kind of intentionally eliminated pitches for guys where i wanted them to basically dominate and i took this from a, a very successful division one pitching coach who's like he wanted them to have two best pitches and possibly a third after that we're kind of getting rid of the rest um and like i kind of took that and ran with it a little bit and i was like all right so i want your two best pitches and maybe a third and that's all we're working on so i don't want to spend your time on stuff but now I'm kind of like shifting my mindset a little bit. And it's like, can I take more of a generalist approach on this a little bit? And like, is there time for me to just literally allow guys to explore ways to move your fastball? So you have a bunch of different variations of your fastball, maybe different variations of your curveball. Because in different situations, based on context, like a different variation of that same pitch may be very functional. And then you're as you're doing that, you're teaching them to pick up different information sources to be able to act upon. And you're basically, it, to me, it's a whole different game of pitching then compared to like i have my fastball and i have my breaker and i'm gonna throw it as hard as i can i'm gonna throw the breaker as hard as i can and this is typically where they work in the zone which is good but i think it constrains you sometimes because what happens when you don't have that well then what you don't you don't even have another plan like you don't it's not there like i can i've been collecting as much data as i can so we know where you get swings and misses and we know what pitches you get swings and misses you know 
like what pitches you can put in the zone, what counts you should be using, all that. But then at the same time, like the moment you lose it, what happens? Like you're not you're, the only information source you know is to throw this fastball as hard as I can in this location and throw my breaker in this location as hard as I can since they usually work. So what happens when it's not there, right? So I've been thinking thinking through that a lot, possibly changing my philosophy on it, or like maybe picking certain guys where I'm constraining them. But opening up, you're allowed to use within this framework. So, yeah, we're putting guardrails on them, um, but allowing other guys to maybe explore a little more, become that more generalist, and which we have. We have some guys that already kind of like that coming in, um, and we have some guys that only have two pitches. So, I don't know. It's just one thing I've been thinking through a, a decent bit, which kind of plays off what you're talking about there. Well, and to, to build off of that, right, what we've, at least what I think I've seen on Twitter, hearing that Oatani added another pitch, Right. And how much like how how that's increased his ability to be very devastating and an effective pitcher. And what I think this, especially for starters, right, there's the third time through the order penalty. But if you have that other that fourth pitch or whatever, you start mixing that in once you get to the third time through or you start using that a little bit more. All of a sudden, I think it it helps reduce that penalty. I would assume that that's the case. Granted, I don't think uh, Robert. Maybe this would be something for you to look up. Uh, how many innings did Owatani go the last time out, or when he started adding that? Um, what was it, cutter or splitter? No, it wasn't splitter. He's he's had the splitter for a long time, but I, I can't remember say, what. Could be wrong. But I thought he went seven, which is still good. I'm I'm so used to watching the Twins where everybody goes like four innings. So when somebody goes seven, you're just like, that's a real, like, that's a, you went a real, like a super long outing, but that's not super long by general standards. Like that's, that's just, that used to be the norm. And I think that's where I find it really interesting kind of what's going on in the pitching world, just in the sense of we've been seeing, and we've been seeing like this idea of staffing it more using openers, et cetera. And in a way, the Twins have kind of done that and it's kind of worked out. I think now their bullpen situation is a little bit better, at least from what I, in the last game that I watched, like they've kind of figured out what their, their three or four guys are and they're getting some guys back healthy. But I think that's where it becomes a challenge, at least from what I've seen. Over the course of 162 games, you run out that bullpen, you know, in a staff mentality for that many games, I don't know if your bullpen hangs up, like holds up as well when you, when you run them out there that frequently like that, that I think is where that model might work great in the short term, but I don't know if it works over the, the long haul when guys actually their usage starts going way up. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I didn't really think about that specifically, but I would tend to agree with that. And I think it's just more times like team C guys, team relievers, mm-hmm. right? Maybe, Maybe limited going into the postseason, but they're throwing all the time. Like every team's going to have more opportunities to see every reliever. It's going to benefit them, in my opinion. You would think so. Robert, what do you got? Yeah. Um, I got a few things. So, one, yes, it was seven innings. Um, two, to go like way back on a point. So, like when you mentioned Zach Ringan messed with timing, there's actually someone with the White Sox right now, Johnny Cueto, that's doing a very good job of messing with timing. I wanted to bring him up, but I didn't know what his ERA was. Cause that, uh, his ERA varies. is number three. Yeah, he's, there, he's doing well. Um, he is, assuming he 
pitches how he's been the entire season. This will be his fourth best season of his career behind all, you know, the, the Royal with the Royals. Um, and then once with, I think actually no twice with the Reds, but um, to kind of piggyback off both your points, right. There is that value of how do we pitch when we know we don't have our best stuff that day? Because that's still something internal, like, like get, uh, Baker mentioned. It's not as easy as, hey, I got to throw this pitch in this spot, you know, every time, because frankly, you just can't do that. But it's also being able to, A, you know, possibly have the data there for you. I mean, different learners, different environments, et cetera. Or B, you know, the pitching coaches there saying, hey, like, here's what you're doing differently. Here's how we can adjust. Because uh, we, like at Quincy, we had a specific example, specific pitcher who was like a high spin, high carry guy on the fall. And he would succeed there. And then in the spring, it, something happened, don't know, kind of went different. But then it was a lot of um, more or less struggles because, like, the, the plan was to have him throw more up in the zone, but then he had a flatter fastball. So then he got hit hard. So then we had to adjust accordingly. And so there was times where he's like, yeah, I felt really good. You know, the fastball was carrying. And then there, there's other times where he's like, yeah, I don't feel it. So then we think of like a plan B in advance where it's like, okay, if you don't feel like your fastball's going up, go ahead and play down in the zone and use it, you know, more or less change it to a sinker. And so the idea behind that is just, again, I'm a big proponent of preparation, just making sure to be prepared when you know, your stuff is not working that day, adjust accordingly. Or, hey, we can go look at the data. Hey, you know, here's your fastball metrics. This is far-fetched from what you normally throw. Here's what we're going to do to adjust it for today. Yeah, and I think, I thought, I saw, I think it was the Yankees. Yeah, it was the Yankees using this. So they were using the Trackman pregame. I, I watched Ray's Yankees game. They had Trackman rolling. And it was um, Cortez talking about another guy messing with Simon, Nestor Cortez, when he was actually really, really tearing it up early in the season. Um, but it just kind of like he just had a role in there. I mean, they looked at it like once or twice, but it kind of, I think it was just giving him a look into how his ball was playing that day. And it kind of helps you make a game plan. Again, there's a limitation to that, I think, because there's a big difference between bullpen and game, in my, in my opinion. And we, we were talking about that as a staff a little bit today and kind of like, understanding the the differences and like I, I think everybody's which i think is really fun like you had the terrible day in the pen and you go tear it up in the game like you're a lot more tuned in the game than you are in the pen and that's a good question to figure out why and i i kind of challenge some of our guys to like think through that a little bit um but you're acting upon much better information within the game than you are in the pen like we've all had that and i've had that plenty of times in my own career i've seen plenty of players talk about that right um but it's it's like going off of one thing you said there robert it's like having that plan be ahead of time. And I think like opening up the toolbox, like you look at Equato, Granky, um, Cortez, like in a way it's like almost a wiffle ball baseball. And I think we don't, we don't think of it that much, but you watch a dude with a wiffle ball and his buddies with, with a bat there, like he's going to do all kinds of crazy stuff. I remember like messing with timing, striding across, coming across, like throwing different angles, 
and like it was just any way I could possibly find a way to get out. And we didn't have one of those wolf claws that make you move like crazy. It was like all the holes in it. So like the thing went straight most of the time. So it's like you have to find every way to get out and like taking that approach to the mound. And it's kind of cool, like the Quatos do, the, the Grankies do, I think, and the Cortezes do. It just opens a toolbox. Even you don't have your best stuff. Well, I can still probably mess with time in a little bit. I can still change arm slots. And those are just different variations of the stuff I already have. Um, again, I just think to me, in my brain, it just like connects like it's a whole different game you're pitching. It's not the same as like I know my metrics, I'm pitching to my metrics, and that's it. That's all I'm doing, which is good. There's hundred percent value in that but there's limitations to that for sure. Well, and that's, that's what I think we're seeing. We're starting to see that. And I think it's good in the sense that it sucks for the team that I like to root for, but it's good. I think for baseball in general, because then it opens, opens you back up for, okay, there's more to that or to this than that. And it's, it sucks for hitters because there's still a lot left in the tank for pitchers. You know, like if, if all you've done is focused on the metrics, then getting back into being way more deceptive, uh, messing with hitters' timing, you know, doing the stuff that Cueto and was it Nestor? I'm not as familiar with his name. Nestor, um, Stroman, like those guys, the way that they try to mess with timing. I mean, the fact that too, I've seen now like a guy throw from down under that's uh, like 90. Like, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for, to see that happen. I figured that that was just a matter of time before somebody was thrown from down under and they're going to get hit 90 like i mean that's well, got to be just absolutely disgusting to, to I'm, face gonna pl- I'm gonna plug one of our guys real quick i got a we got a guy in staff he's like he's like from down down here mm-hmm. he was like first scrimmage 88 so that's kind of gross yeah oh that's I'm, what i like I'm, to hear i'm excited for that but anyways um and then there's another guy so justin lawrence with the rockies um he's up to 98 now he's not like a submariner but like he throws like a low sidearm and he's he's up to ninety eight, which is again like just unheard of. And it just it goes back to for me looking at it like man, how are we going to prepare guys for this? And I don't think I mean I know this came up in our in our uh, Twitter group chat of the pitching machine that is like completely adjustable and throws different pitches. I do think that like it kind of helps a little bit, but. I mean, okay, so there's two things. I'm going to poke holes in my own argument that I that I made. The fact that there is variation in terms of the release point and the release height, right? So your extension, um, release height, like all of those vary from pitch to pitch, even if it's the same pitch. Like I even I looked at Justin Ver- Verlander, and I can't remember. It's it's a significant enough. It's six to eight to ten inches difference between each of those. Like you can have a range that. It might not be like all the time. Those might be some outliers. I mean, the other, so here's me poking holes in it. How much of that is just margin of error for the, the technology itself, right? TrackMan or whatever it is that's, that's collecting it. I, I would assume it's Hawkeye now. Um, yeah. So I would assume what I, because I pulled the 20, like this season's data. And so I'd assume that that is fairly accurate. It was interesting because I saw Paul Glazier, basically it was like, so what's the point of doing collecting all this this data if you know you're still looking at tolerance? If you believe things are self-organized, I can't remember exactly what the the full quote was, but I was looking up like what he was talking about and it it basically just had to do with what's the margin of error 
when it comes to a piece of technology. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about tolerance. So and according to the um, Sabre StatCast presentation in 2020, when they were going to roll out Hawkeye for the next year, um, in terms of like pitches themselves and like the, the metrics um, in terms of errors, like estimated error, According to that presentation, they said that using the Hawkeye unit, you know, prior because they started using it in 2020 before the pandemic, um, they said it was up to 99.8% of basically accuracy. Yeah, so, but what does that mean in terms of inches? Right? right. That's what I'm saying. And that's what I was, you know, getting at. You know, what does that mean in terms of inches? One. And then two, you kind of mentioned it in that chat, you know, like, then we get into the law of averages. How effective is you know using the law of averages when each when each right. when each event discrete event is unique in and of itself? Now it doesn't mean that you won't ever repeat combinations, but if you're not used to that variation, how are you going to adjust to it? Because I, I mean, here's here's what I've seen based upon the the research on just pitching machines. From a gaze behavior standpoint, and I probably have to, I should pull up the the paper, but it's a it's a cricket study, and it looked at the gaze behavior of cricket batters, and all they'll do on a pitching machine, even if I think, even if they put up a projection of a person pitching it, the person, the batter just stares at the outlet where the ball comes out. I mean, why wouldn't they? And this is something that Rob Gray talks a lot about: of athletes are lazy learners. Meaning they will take the path of least resistance or will find the easiest way to solve the problem consistently. And so if all you have to do is just stare at the outlet for the machine, then you never get good at picking up the information of where to find the release point on a pitcher. And what's interesting though, at least talking to with some players, and it's not true of all players, but if some players, they actually prefer hitting off of an actual person because there's more information there to tell you when to get ready, where to move and how to move and or where to move essentially. Um, and so, but I still think at least for some guys who struggle, their ability to pick up the release point and know where to look on the, on the pitcher really, really is the thing that I think nobody is looking at or talking about. And that's also, I think, the biggest struggle with using a machine is that that whole element is is not a factor there. Yeah, so, I, would, I, would, I mean, I would agree with that, especially when you start talking. Again, not everybody uses it yet, but then we already talked about it. But say you start going into like your Zach Gankries and your Johnny Cuetos and your Esther Cortezes who are messing with timing on top of that and coming out of a slot. Like you, you literally get none of that out of the machine. Like that's not even a possibility. So I think machines unless unless it's that whatever whatever that that super expensive machine was that they're talking about. I mean that's the question of like how yeah. I would assume that you could do it a little bit, but I mean you're going to see beforehand the outlet moving. So you're going to know where the release point is if he's going to drop down because the outlet's going to have moved lower. Like you're going to and that's that's where I just look at like the machine is cool but that nothing beats a live person. And this is where it becomes difficult. And I'd be curious, I suppose, 
Baker, I mean, I don't know when you're going to announce it, but you know, I mean, you're you're at a different spot. But I, I guess here's my my question to you: Is how are you wanting to train your pitchers, and especially, and does it is it going to help out your hitters the way that you're going to try to train your pitchers? I mean, hopefully down the road it will. Or again, being in a new spot, we'll get there. You know. But I mean, a lot, a lot of what I'm doing at the moment is like we're we're trying to get as much live as possible. Because honestly, the next three like sessions we have with our pitchers that are going to be touching them out that with high intensity are all going to be live. They're going to be scaled like tomorrow's going to be a little scaled down live, and Monday and then Friday may be a little more ramped up for what we're doing. But it's like in the fall where it's literally as much live as you could possibly get. And when it's not live, like I'm encouraging hitters to always at least stand in again i know there's some research i talked to talked to a buddy in my mind who is an mlb organ they they did a research and talking about how the information source is just so different and how you act upon like a stand-in like how you're tracking when you're standing in versus when you're hitting so there may be lack of value in that but i think there's value in for our pitchers looking at spacing and all that um but pitchers right now i mean we're it's always problem there's always problem and we're always trying to find a solution for it so there are always hypothetical stand-ins and we're never just throwing a club side fastball like it's useless to me it's a fastball to a righty trying to get first strike off the bat so you're always like there's a problem like we're trying to get ahead of the righty or even with a breaker it's like okay you're, there may be a different context for a pitch but we're trying to trying to put them in those problems as often as possible and we'll, we'll probably be doing something similar to that in the live situations by putting people in different situations and within the live and again it's problem problem solution just always coupled trying to keep those those together um but yeah as far as hitters things go i mean i think as much as i can get my pitchers thrown against hitters especially when we're ramped up like we we relatively are now i think there's just there's more value in that and you can scale it up you can scale it down you can you can do it more guided where i'm technically coaching it a little more helping them to notice where to look or kind of like guiding them in certain ways but if it's still alive, it's a heck of a lot better than just throwing a bullpen or just taking like regular, I don't know, like 30 foot BP, right? Yeah. I mean, cause I, I only see that as the solution to trying to help hitters out more. I mean, I, I do think there's some value in doing velo machine and whatever, just something so that they can, from a perceptual standpoint, feel the pressure of velo. I think that's super important, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend a ton of time on it though. Like that's and just I've, my, my thought. I have noticed. So really good, really good division one program. Like I know they spend a ton of time on the velo machine and they, if they get a dude pumping, like that has relatively high spin, good velo, like they're going to, they're going to hit him a little bit. They're going to hit him around the ballpark, but then you get the, the left-handed flipper throwing somewhere between 83 and 86, maybe decent little breaker and just kind of filling it up like they're probably gonna they're probably gonna lose that game and like that's that's something you don't want to keep happening right and then you you know there's a chink in the armor and you can get beat at any time if that team has that guy and they can roll him out there to that big data you know so the velo machine helps helps to a certain extent and it helps you get ready for that velo but i mean that's not being a very attuned adaptable and dexterous hitter at the end of the day only to one very specific variable I do want to kind of go back just a little bit. Let's see if I can pull this up because I did have it up right, here. I I pulled that up. 
We went down another tangent. No, not that one. There's a there's oh, a different one. This another one. This this goes for for hitting. When we're talking about, we're going all the way back to the to the beginning, where we're talking about. Um, let me click on the right one. There we go. Um, Bad ball outcomes, because I think this is the other thing of all right, hit the ball in the air. But the question that you should be asking is to like, what's the hang time? So, because, okay, yeah, you can hit the ball super hard and super high, but is it going to carry far enough? You know, for example, if you have a good defense out there that they can cover 60 feet in about three seconds, well, if your hang time is three and a half, well, he's probably going another, you know, 10 to 15 feet. So that puts him at what, like 75 feet? You know, that that means that his circle is going to start to expand more. Like you're going to be able to start get to get balls that you smash into the gap. But if you put it up there and it hangs up there, guys have a chance of going and tracking that thing down. And so that's where to me, hang time is another component if you're not hitting it out of the ballpark that plays into if you're just, you know, looking at exit below and you're just looking at potentially um i'm trying to like attack angle or on plane efficiency if you're not also looking at maybe a launch angle that that i think especially launch angle is going to play in there as far as how good or a quality is your hit because i think that's where it it becomes it becomes the challenge of okay let's say you hit it at like a good launch angle which is going to hang up there for about two to two two and a half seconds but if it's hit right at the guy it's probably an out. We're just seeing that enough where if it's not going over his head, then it's going right to him and he's catching it and you're out. And so that's where to me, like it's, it's, it's harder, right? This is where for me, I really like the idea of doing BP outside as much as I can. And I get it at the pro level. Pro level, I think is different because the amount of games and how much they're outside on the field. But if we're talking about high school, college, where you're not playing as many games. And they and two, here's the other part of it. The players themselves don't have as many games underneath their belt either. And I think that's, that's the other element that separates the pro guy from the, the college and the high school kid. And so I want to hit out on the field as much as I can, and I want to start putting out like some sort of, you know, if I don't have fielders, I want to put something out in center field, out in right field, where the defense would be playing so that they can get the feedback of, man, you piece that ball up and you just hit the trash can or whatever it is that I have out in center field. Well, now you know that that ball in a game, yeah, you hit it well, but that, that led to, a, to an out. And if, we're, if the whole goal is to hit it where they're not, then we begin to learn as a hitter where on the field to hit the ball. Because, for example... <laughs> I'm trying to get our hitters to understand that if you go to the six hole here on the ground, that's actually not a bad hit. Like that works out. That gets us on base. Don't be mad if you roll a ball over and you put it in the six hole. That's really hard to determine when you're in the cage, whether or not that ball was going six hole or was going to the shortstop or going to the third baseman. And the same thing too of you hit a little flare that probably hangs up there for three and a half seconds. Well, this guy is probably not able to get over here and you're dropping it in or dropping it in over here, like that's going for a double, even though you probably didn't have your best exit velo and your best launch angle 
that's a double. And so when you're talking about your um, OPS, your slugging percentage, all that sort of stuff, like you're padding your stats right there. If you have the ability to, if you're a left or a right-handed hitter to dump the ball over here, that's a very potent weapon to have in your arsenal. And I, I want to say Urshela last night hit a double over in here that scored three runs and broke the game open for the Twins and put them ahead. And so that's where, to me, people, like everybody wants to talk about hitting it here, which I think is okay. But most guys, as you can see here, the right fielder is going to line up right straight off of second base. Same thing with the, the left fielder. And I don't know, maybe you can begin to see too, actually, that you, you have a little bit more overlap in here and there's more space over here in this in this window here. I mean, you guys can correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I think the this area here tends to oftentimes lead to doubles. And two, if you got guys in scoring position, that guy having to run from here to over here, like you're going to be able to score from there. So that that to me, if I actually want our guys to have the ability to figure out how can they keep the ball fair and work down both both sides of the line. I mean, I, I like the idea of going here to the gaps. Like th This is definitely an affordance. But for some reason, it seems as though the way most defenses are set up, until they figure out, okay, you're a flare guy as a lefty, I'm going to start playing in and I'm going to start moving over. Well, then that opens up this, this gap over here for you. Or if they then, you're just an oppo guy, they shift you over this way, well, you got this affordance over here. So that's where I think trying to teach guys. I want to have the whole field open for them, if that makes sense. And I, I want to focus on all of this, so to speak, or like have us work on this whole gamut versus just being right here. So that's at least what yeah. I wanted to talk about. Like when you're starting to look at what is it that we want to measure and to make targets. I think this would be something where maybe we have a sheet, you know, and somebody's sitting there charting, okay, where on the field are they hitting it type of a thing. And then regardless of whether or not you have hit tracks or um, flight scope or track man, like you could just simply, you know, guy with a stopwatch and a, sh and a clipboard and you're just marking and doing spray charts on guys and then you could have that for yourself and work on that you know with the guy standing behind the turtle i i think that would be a one simple way to you could actually now start to measure and quantify a guy's ability to exploit space on the field yeah see i, I uh, like that to me it it connects a lot with the idea of what i was talking with pitching it's like that's a whole different game because i think the with the new data people got very one-dimensional and they're just trying to like plug gaps like that that's your strategy of getting extra base hit well there's other ways to get extra base hits and like exploit defenses right than just trying to plug gap to gap the entire time is like one some guys may not even have that like they're going to hit it and it's going to end up in one of those circles and it's going to be caught every single time where there's other options but two like what you're talking about that may open up in a whole nother affordance if you can if you can put it down there and you can also plug a gap like it may start opening up something that's a little easier to put it put it in the gap. And to me, it's just a different game. For, same thing with pitching. It's like we're just chasing these metrics because this is what I thought I should be doing because the metrics are saying that and it looks good 
and it looks good in a video or whatever it may whatever it may be i was told to do this in my training facility and without game context and then you get into a game and you don't have your plan b or plan c or you don't have many other options to go to to be able to get somebody out right and then same thing here because you're always in a i think this is where cages hurt a ton like you're talking about like you don't see where the ball's landing you're not seeing it's a functional functional hit right you're you're saying oh that wasn't hit very hard like the exit below doesn't say the same as as the other the other one but that was actually a more functional swing because where you were able to place the baseball you actually beat the defense right so i think that's i actually really like this graphic i was searching for it for a little bit i think it i kind of like the how it talks about like if the ball does hang up and how how quickly can they get there and you probably measure that on the field too like i half wonder if you could like mvp have these circles kind of circles there and like that's what right, i was thinking which i think is really interesting i mean here's here's what i've learned just you know, for the whole video setup that I showed at the beginning, and that took me longer than I wanted to set that up. You know, like I just from having used tech and just trying to do all this sort of stuff, like putting circles out there, I just know that depending upon where this happens in your practice, just from a straight logistical standpoint, like that's where the challenge comes of like, okay, for example, if I wanted to do the camera setup I had for RBP. It just wouldn't happen because of the flow of our practice. Like we're going to do defensive work beforehand before we do BP. Well, I'm not going to have my cameras set up necessarily. I might be able to get some of it depending upon if it's just mass fungos. But if it's if it's a defense where we're throwing and stuff, it might be hard for me to have everything set up because balls are flying around and they may actually want we may want to use use this space back here behind home plate. Like that's where I just look at like how long is it going to take you to get this set up? You know what I mean? For when you're transitioning, like this is, this is the stuff that if you go and look at like uh, John Wooden, right? This is what he spent a lot of his time on was figuring out, okay, where does the equipment need to be stationed so we can minimize the amount of downtime between, between activities because and this is something that I really appreciate about our head coach. He's, his goal is to try to not have guys be there for too long. And that's a mistake that I think a lot of us coaches, myself included, fall into. Of We're just like, we're going to be here until it gets done. And, but then we don't plan very well to execute that, to get it done in a quick and efficient manner and making sure things are like ready to go and having... like It, it just, from a logistical standpoint, that's where I look at okay, it, right. conceptually, a lot of these ideas are great, but how do we logistically get them to work out in practicality? And I think that's where the question of how do you measure out this so that you have it done like very quickly? You know, For example, of, I kind of like this idea of could I have different... Because like what I did, and it, I spray painted spots on my field for flight scope so but i made sure to put them like all the way into the to the ground so that it's not just getting cut continually but that also means that sometimes it's hard to find them so that's the thing of like okay you like how like i wonder if you could put you know spray paint little spots in your in your field where you so then when you go out there you just plop these things down and really I think you could probably just get away with like parts of the ring 
like really visually one cone here, a certain color. Maybe it's a flag. I mean, maybe that would be easier. Put out little flags like the ones that they use for um, where they mark, you know, where electrical lines are and stuff like that. Put little flags out and then I'd probably mark here and I'd probably maybe mark here, you know, these parts of the circle. I think that might be with different colors, right? Because I think the colors would, would be helpful to know like, okay, this one's going to be a stretch for a guy. You know, red is going to be, he's, he's surefire catch. And this is going to be maybe, um, you know, also, but I would say out once you get out to this ring, it's probably going down to like maybe 75% chance of a catch. Yeah. I would, right. about people less fortunate that have turf fields, you know, can't, we can't spray paint. Or, it's true. Uh, yeah. Or put flags. So, I mean, us less fortunate people um, can't don't have that affordance. So I'd have to use cones. But our head coach actually did something. It's not like this, but we used cones, and he I think it was more gaps. I don't really know what he was doing. Um, it seemed seemed pretty good, but it's like he it was just like one day where we had more time where BP was kind of up front and wasn't mm -hmm. going to interfere with anything we're doing up front. Like he just goes and sets up all the cones. Him and another assistant ahead of time takes a little time, but. Um, I feel like once you do it once or twice and you can have, I don't think it's, I don't know if that's an every, every time thing to me, but I think if you highlight it once or twice, it's going to give the guys an idea of it. And then you can have real fielders over there and they would have a general idea of the spacing, right? It kind of gives them, maybe makes them a little more, to use more ecological terms, like a little more sensitive to that information, right? Kind of where, where it may be caught, not caught. So I think that's where my mind kind of went with it. It'd have to be like a practice where you're like, we're doing BP up front. You can get there to the field ahead of time, have that have that already set up and kind of like at least allow them to interact with that like once or twice. I want to give I wonder, give oh go ahead, Robert. <clears throat> I wonder if there's a way now this is kind of like a, a big brain idea, but like basically like building out like a more or less like a giant protractor in a way where you plant the stake at whatever center spot you want and then you have like red string 30 feet you know blue string 45 feet and then black string 60 feet and then you just basically just walk it around and then um dispense the string accordingly you know they i actually kind of like that idea you know because we already do this i know for us we have way too many of the chalk line strings but like if you just if you just use that, that actually might be a good a good way to do this is you use those chalk line strings and you put little, I don't know, knots in it, and then you just, you know, walk it out to those different little knots. Once you have those knots out there, then you can put whatever you want, a cone or whatever, and then you just walk it like you're talking about in a circle, Robert. Like that might be yeah. a very easy way to get this done in a very quick and efficient manner. Uh, to use something like this. The other thing uh, to, I was going to say, I, I think I probably heard this from Nick, um, but I was, I was kind of thinking the same thing of what I've seen that kind of annoys me. And this is, you know, I've been different places where, you know, pitchers are out there shagging or whatever. You have guys, just a bunch of guys just shagging in the outfield. I actually get really annoyed when there's too many guys out there because it doesn't give good feedback to our hitters. When, you know, Joe Schmo is standing out in right center field, guy pieces up a ball and, and, he, and somebody goes and runs it down. You're like, 
yeah, that was not a good hit. It's like, yeah, it was, but you didn't get the feedback and the satisfaction to know that that ball that you hit was going to burn a guy who was playing in normal normal position. So I almost, to, to go off of what something that Nick had come up with, or had starts implementing with his guys of guys who are not up, like they need to be a half kneel and just down. And I almost think like if you want to have guys out there, like, okay, the guy who's not up, he's doing a half kneel. And then when that guy goes and takes off for a ball, then the other guy pops up and then he's good to go. And then that other guy is, you know, dead. And that, that I think would give a better look for our hitters to actually get better feedback as to whether or not, you know, for what it, whatever it was they're executing. Cause some of it's, it's a question of like, okay, game winner, um, moving a guy over. Is it deep enough for them to tag? All those sorts of things begin to play in to, did a guy actually execute what he was trying to do there based upon where the defense actually is and who's up and where if you just have a bunch of guys just standing around randomly. And I think that's going to be something that's probably going to be hard to change from a just a baseball culture standpoint because it's just nobody's really paying attention to what the defensive guys are doing out there. And I think yeah. that... But I do think you could actually gain something by having having only certain guys up at a time or just even too like I get annoyed when some of our like our catchers or whatever will just go stand in the outfield it's like no no go stand somewhere in the infield where an infielder would be I'd rather see guys um, standing on an infield or at an infield position so that guys can tell hey that line drive that he just hit would that actually have been caught by a middle infielder you know, was it right to a guy or did it actually have the loft to get over a guy? Because sometimes I, I see some of that and I'm like, you know what? He probably, that was probably an out. But if you, if I actually have a guy there, whether or not he's a true shortstop or not, and he hits it in the hole and seeing a guy move over that direction, you get a sense of, man, oh, he almost got that one or he had zero shot at getting that one and you hit it hard enough to, to punch it through the hole there. And two, yeah. like even if you don't have enough guys and you only have one guy over here and you have two guys over here, man, it's almost like you have a shift going on, right? And you, this guy can kind of play wherever and now all of a sudden you can play with this space over here. And so to me, this is where I think we can do a lot better when we have a field to helping guys begin to experience and learn how to hit to open space based upon where the defense is. Yeah. Um, my, I, I completely agree with you there because again, there's just so much value. And again, it's that instant feedback, similar to how we use data, that instant feedback, there's that instant feedback of, man, you know, was that a hit? But if, you know, random pitcher out there catches the ball that's in right center, like you don't really know if it was, um, but my minor thing was like with catchers, there almost needs to be like some exploration with them because this has happened firsthand. We've had not one, but two catchers like as part of batting practice, like go stay in the outfield and like make, make reads. Both of them are spending time out in the outfield, you know, because one would, because, uh, you know, with the way the GLBC works, 
is you play one game Friday, two games Saturday, one game Sunday. So basically those catchers would just trade off. One would be in right, the other one would catch, and then so on and so forth. So I think there's there's still that, you know, opportunity for exploration. And then on the other end, you know, there still needs to be that kind of structure. So like what you mentioned earlier, I, I think with the kneel down approach could be a really good way to combine both those elements, one, and then two, be able to give hitters that necessary feedback. Because again, something I found interesting was, you know, when you mentioned launch angles earlier, I found that at a, I looked at like a 10 to 20 degree launch angle, and then I looked at 75 to 85 exit velocity, and then 90 and above, and then that kind of 85 and 90. So 75 to 85 had a higher expected batting average at the MLB level than in that launching range than that 90 to 100. Why? Because of these circles you're showing, because they're hit hard enough that there's a field of it. Whereas the ones that are hit a little bit softer but have that enough loft to go over the infielder's head are end up dropping for a hit. But when you're in a practice setting and you have you know, three or four guys playing short left field and they catch the ball. How do you know if that's, you know, truly a hit? And then you as a hitter have to adjust accordingly based upon. I do think, and not, I'd just be reiterating if I would just talk about the good point about like not having too many fielders out there. I do think one issue, I'm not going to go into it, but could be talked about at some point is like, I think big the issue with people not being able to change this is because what do you do with the pitchers during this time, right? It's like I think that that becomes like we're two hours into our practice, the last hour's BP. Like, well, okay, what are the pitchers doing? Like, of course you're just gonna throw them out there, right? I mean, I, as a pitcher, I wore the Shagger Swagger shirt like from routine baseball. Like, I was all about it, but I was trying to make reads. Just being honest, I wasn't one of those pitchers standing around. Like, I was trying to, I was once the center fielder took off, I was up in his spot trying to trying to get the next one before he came back. But that, I think that's. In the baseball community, that needs to be talked about. Okay, so what what now do you do? You already have you're two hours in with your pitchers. They're obviously not throwing anymore. They've already done their throwing. They've already maybe done their little bit of conditioning, whatever, and they're recovered. And now what? You know, and that's a that's a problem that probably needs some solving. Until until then, I think you're going to continue to see um, pitchers just kind of sit around the outfield, like clog spaces because they're bored. They don't have very good attention spans for the most part, unfortunately. Um, I was working on that with a little mindfulness every day. Um, but I think that's that's something that we could be talking about down the road. And then the last thing I'll say on this is we, when I was with um, AIC, we actually did this. I don't know exactly how it was set up because um, I wasn't involved. So I was doing stuff with the pitchers during BP the entire time. But it was actually a, a very intense tracking system. And our BP went through the roof. And I think we played some of the best we ever did. But they were tracking the defense the entire time and actually putting d- different defenses on, kind of what you're talking about. Um, it's like you literally had to make so many plays. You had to turn so many double plays. You're putting them in different situations. Like you're acting like there's a runner on first in certain situations. There's times where the, the outfield may be going out. They may be playing in at different times. So it's actually like you're kind of moving around and exploring with them. But I don't think how it was tracked was perfected by the time we were done with the season because it was like you had to make so many catches in the outfield. You had to turn so many double plays. Even like a comebacker to the L screen, a pitcher had to fake like – Turn turn two, um, so there there are some some flaws to it, but I think it ramped up 
DP for both the hitter. But I think what happened too is like because we tracked so many, like we had to get so many like putouts from our shortstop. Like guys intentionally started hitting the short because they're like, "Oh, we're gonna be out here forever." So I started rolling over short. However, maybe there's some usefulness in that because now you're working barrel control. I don't know, but that was I think that helped a ton as far as like just just as far as for the hitters initially and the fielders. Yeah. No. Go ahead, Robert. There's that side of it too. Like when you mentioned pitchers, like. We, we encourage pitchers to be athletic because what does that do in turn? You know, having that, uh, you know, shagger swagger, things like that. It allows them to be athletic in the field, which then in turn allows them to be athletic on the mound. So it increases athleticism and then allows them to, you know, understand their movements a little bit better when they're out there, you know, shagging or doing something of the like. So. Yeah, there is that that really tough fine line, and it's it's not easy to be able to say, "Hey, you know." But can we create environments where, during that time, can we use kind of the space that's outside of the field or something to allow pitchers to be athletic? That's again, that's that's another conversation for another time. But yeah. um, that's still a really good point you bring up. Avoid. I'll avoid my rant on this because obviously I have plenty, plenty ideas on that. But I feel like that might be for a different topic. I mean, that's that's fair. I guess the there's one um, to go about the cage thing. I did, and I wish I had all the proper images. I might have it somewhere. For um, I believe Riggins put out a really nice one to show how much how much of the field uh the cage takes up right it's it it takes up such a small portion of the field that we need to be cognizant of i do so. think that's interesting though no, I, don't, I don't think i ever thought about like if you were just plop a cage like on home plate and stick it actually on the field what it would actually look like yeah i measured our cage this is what it looks like on a field <laughs> right like it's not it's super small you know, like most balls that we were watching earlier, like they're kind of going in here. And if can't remember what I had this, this is, this is the line. This is where is where I think the first baseman kind of is, is if you hit this ball here, it's going to first. Um, and then if you're standing here and you pull it, this is kind of going to third and like, I mean, just look at how small of a window you have between foul and fair or to the third baseman, just from just, if you're just talking angles right out of the box, like that to me is the, the craziest thing when you're hitting in, in the cage. And I believe these white lines are where your middle infielders are. So if you hit it this way, this is where traditionally your second baseman is going to be playing. Oh, sorry. And I have the mouse in the right spot. So foul or foul lines. Right here, where I think third baseman is from where home plate in theory is, and then your first baseman hitting it over here, hitting it to second base is that white one, and hitting it to shortstop is that other white one. And so, depending upon too, like where your shortstop is playing, like if he's playing here and I and I hit kind of a weak ground ball back up the middle, that may be picked up by the shortstop. And you get thrown out. You know, same thing even with this other one over here. So 
I mean, that's where, to me, it's, should we always be rewarding balls hit back to the back of the cage? I think it depends on how hard it was hit. Like, if you hit a hard ground ball to the back of the cage, that's probably squeaking through. But if you hit a ground ball to, like, the middle part here, you're probably looking at at ground balls to, to second base or to, to your middle infielders, these two white ones. Right, because, like, in in our case, like, we were thankful to have flight scope, so it gave us somewhat of a, you know, field projection. It gave us a little bit better idea, but even then, in those, in some cases, so, like, on, on the other side of the cage, so we had, like, a two-cage setup to kind of filter in pitchers, you know, rather quickly, so we would be there all day. Um, but on that other cage, like, you know, yeah, you hit it right back to the back of the net. They're like, oh, barrel, that's an easy hit. Well, is it really? That's where kind of that, that feedback makes it really tough for you to be like, eh, it might be. Or in the case of, you know, is a ball fair or foul is another thing that you could talk about within that cage setting. Yeah. So here, just to try to get it, you know, make sure I was kind of, you know, right. Like that's, I, it's not perfectly on home plate, but it kind of gets you the idea of if he's, uh, if you're to hit it that direction in the cage, there we go first. So you can kind of see like where I had those cones. Like it's, it's crazy to me how close that is to the foul line. So if you put foul lines in your cage, if you don't basically hit it right here, which is probably not going to stay fair, but you have this tiny little window to hit it through to try to keep it keep it fair. But I do think, though, if you hit it here, that that's a hit. Like I think that's that's where it's like, how do we represent? We go back to this one here, right? If you're able to hit through, man, that's where it's like hit through in this area, you have kind of a chance. This is where, again, it's like, I can't, trying to figure out these angles is to me really tough to, to try to visualize where those hits and where those holes and those gaps in the infield are for guys. And this is where I, I totally understand why someone like DBU just puts up launch angle strings and we're going to hit just rising line drives that clear the, the infield. Because if you do that in a general sense, like more often than not, those will turn into hits. But, I mean, it's really hard to try to train a complete hitter inside. And quite honestly, DBU should be able to get outside. <laughs> that yeah. why would why would they hit in a cage when you're when you're in Texas? I don't know. I mean, I get I it when it's like a bazillion degrees outside, but it ain't that in the spring. I've heard, I've heard it gets cold. I don't know. I'm I'm we'll wait I'm sure it does, but I mean. I'm going to try this this fall for as long as we can still get outside after fall ball ends and we get, you know, our our individual work like I'm going outside. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm even good. if I'm cold, we're using that field for as long as we can because I know in the spring there's going to be snow on this sucker and we're not going to be able to use it till May. <laughs> like yeah. like yeah, Let's uh let's yeah. try to get as much use out of it as possible. So that's I mean, it's I this, beautiful in the in the in the fall, but man, playing in the past north. Spring, 
on non non game days and practice days this year, I tallied it up. We had more indoor practice days during the spring than we did outdoor oh, yeah. because of weather. Yeah, I mean, I'll it's just it. it's just playing in the north. Like it's, man. I mean, we were talking about we should we need to figure out how to turf our field. <laughs> like we would be able to get on at least a little bit earlier. But then it does, it brings up a, and a just beautiful like thought or point like, okay, for these schools that are in climates where being outside is rather unfavorable, how can we get represent, you know, representation by being indoors? And that's why I did this. Like I have the percentages. I want to say this is like 20 ish degrees off center. From center, I believe it's like 20, 25. I don't know. Like it should be 45, right? So if this is a 90 degree angle, yo, 45, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not very good with math, but I remember like taking the numbers and they were about 20 ish degrees. I want to say 20 to 25 degrees from the center. And it's like five or something. For something absurdly small for the corners. Yeah, 20 degrees, and I had basically 35. So if you start dead center and I go 35 degrees, yeah, that makes sense because it's a full 45 to this line. So if you <laughs> basically five degrees from the foul line over is where your corners are. And if you go basically 30 degrees in from your foul lines is where your middles are. So yeah, it's kind of absurd how small these gaps are where these fielders are. It, I mean, it's just, it's it just goes to show for younger players, okay? I'm going to make that caveat for younger players. Because I understand why pro guys actually perform better when they hit in the cage uh before games and they don't go out and do the on-field stuff. But for younger guys that need the experience, you just it's so hard to replace hitting hitting on a field. And I do think you can get away with hitting in a dome um you you're doing way better when you can get a big cage to hit in. So if you can hit in a big cage that's, you know, if you can get basically three wide, a cage that's um, you know, gets you out to here on both of these, like that then makes this you can visualize this way better and begin to see all this. Because then you can start to get your foul lines in there more. And I've seen that. And I mean if I could I would try to hit in that setting as much as I possibly could. So, uh, you guys got anything else? I feel like we've probably beat this topic into the ground. I don't have anything else. Oh, really? I mean, I'd say the last, the last thing I would say to it is just like thinking like indoor practice. I mean, luckily in the situation I'm here, I don't really have to think about indoor practice anymore, but like, it's so hard to just make it representative in a cage. It's like near impossible. So it's 
to me, it's almost more of a losing game at times, like trying to go down that rabbit hole and finding ways. Since no matter what you do, like even if you say that, oh, that might have been down the line, like no, they may think it in their head, like after you say it, but like the feedback's not there, right? Yeah. You don't see the ball going in the corner. So it's almost, and I don't know if this is necessarily 100% true, if trying to make it representative and like hitting the exact holes and putting it where it needs to be has more value than just simply like giving them problems to solve. Yeah. Like finding finding different problems, even if it's not technically representative or the angles don't line up, that they still may carry over since they're still, they're still searching for some form of information, right? And trying to solve the problem within, within, a hopefully an arm and with the bat right so like that's i don't know that's just kind of where my brain went with it um because this this looks really complicated and trying to figure out how to like get them to actually believe that okay that this was that wasn't that you know what i mean first like let's just be problem solvers and then you can reward if you solve the problem we gave you and you're searching for that information right i agree and that's where i go back to i think it's simpler to just put up launch angle strings because Mm -hmm. i do think having some sort of external focus and trying to now with being indoors you're going to just play the the odds you know and try to figure out okay how many different ways can you hit a ball with this launch angle but i still think at least to me i would still want to at least keep these in i think this is too hard to your point but if i if you have an understanding of where your middles are that that at least gives you context for this line drive that hit the cage right here is probably going to be a one hopper to your middle. Like I don't think guys understand. We we cl- we clap it up for guys. Oh, good line drive. Yeah, yeah. When it's really it, it's super low on the side of the cage, and you're like, that's that's a ground ball. Like it for for like an eight foot or I think that's kind of like we have eight eight and a half. No, I think it's taller than that. It's got to be taller than that. Maybe like 11 or 12 foot cages, right? Like you need to be hitting it kind of near the top of the cage if you're going into the sidewalls for it to Mm -hmm. not be a ground ball. If you're like at like in the middle of that cage, like it's not. The other thing too, I was going to say, I was joking with guys when we were doing on-field BP and balls were getting hit up in the air and guys were, you know, they're just going to the outfielders. I would be like, hey, in the cage, that's a double. You know, or, you know, we'd say that was a home run because I mean, that's what you, cause even yeah. too, you look at the exit velo, the exit velo is probably decent, decent enough. And you're like, that ball's probably gone. Like, nope. Right to the guy, you know, when we're on the field and that's, that's where for me, it's, it's one of those things where you have, to your point before it's the cage is just so hard to, to really try to help guys really understand, is this going to translate? But I think like, again, to your point, doing all those different sort of just giving them a bunch of different tasks and trying to get them to be as athletic, dexterous um, hitters is, is going to be the best way to, to probably see things translate to the field. Yeah. Some form of pickup, some form of information that they have to act upon, I think. At least we'll have somewhat. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I want to do um, is plug stuff for you guys a little bit more. Um, So to wrap up, how can people find and support you guys if you have any things? I know at least one of us or one of you guys does. 
as far as social media? Well, I mean, social media for sure. But also, I know, um, Robert, you got a, a Patreon and oh. you got your YouTube channel and, you know, that sort of a thing. So I want to at least uh, create a space for you to shout that stuff out. All right, I will do, and I appreciate that, Garrett. Uh, we will. Uh, you can reach me at uh, Robert Fry Forty. Uh, that's R O B E R T F R E Y Forty on Twitter, and then same thing for Patreon, uh, Patreon.com/slash Robert Fry. Uh, and then my YouTube channel as well. Same thing. My name just Robert Fry. That allows you to learn how to code in R with baseball data. And then the Patreon kind of just supports me continuing to create wonderful content. And then Twitter could be a vast things of not just YouTube, but maybe analyzing the game in a different way. So definitely, definitely, I appreciate any and all who follows. I'm always open for a good conversation. Baker, do you got anything? Where where how, where can people find you? I can always plug my social media, which is just at. Coach G Baker on Twitter. Um, and I just pretty much post whatever comes to my mind and whatever I'm thinking. So usually 100% baseball or Bible content. And then Instagram, I'm not using quite as much anymore, but I'll probably start posting on that again. So it's the same thing at Coach G Baker. Those are my two accounts. And then um, I'm super excited to let people know that uh, you should check out Emergences stuff. And if you want to get a little bit of a discount for their courses that they have, um, use the code finding the edge seven, and you can either spell that all out, no spaces, um, or you can just use the initials F T E seven to get 7% off on all courses, except for the movement Academy. Uh, highly recommend that you guys check out the, um, the movement Academy intro or the TMA intro, um, course that rich and Michael Zwiefel just put out. It's really good 12-week course on just the basics of an ecological approach um, and kind of comparing that between a traditional approach or an information processing approach. They cover a lot of the stuff that we try to cover here on this podcast, but in depth and all organized. So highly recommend that you guys go check that out and get 7% off um, on any purchase there. And it also, it helps support this, this podcast as well. I'll, I'll put that out there. Um, it does it does help me out. So if you want to use that code to learn more and improve your craft and become a more attuned, adaptable, dexterous coach, go over there at emergentmovement.com to find stuff out. I'll have all the stuff linked in the description for all these guys and all the stuff that they posted. And uh, until next time.